This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I got to say, college athletics, college football in general, I think it's failed. I think it's failed already, and the season hasn't even started. Has it failed? Well, this is what we're talking about in week one, to start off week one. We're talking about what's going to happen with the ACC. We're talking about Jim Harbaugh, who's come out and said that athletes should revenue share. We're talking about what's going to happen with Oregon State and Washington State. What conference will they play in? A lot to sort out amid... Hey, it's week one and there's some games going on. Oregon's going to host Portland State on Saturday. Oregon State's going to San Jose State on Sunday. So, yeah, all the focus should be on Bo Nix and the Ducks and maybe a little bit on Portland State. Like, can they provide much of a speed bump for Oregon? But meanwhile, we're looking over and rubbernecking at like, all right, uh, what is 2024 going to look like? What is 25 going to look like? Stanford and Cal going looks like they are to the ACC. That shouldn't be the discussion that we're having on Monday, day one of week one. Day one of week one should have been about hopes, dreams, great seasons. It should have been about the possibility of Oregon and Oregon State meeting in the conference championship game in Las Vegas. Can you imagine that? A civil war at Autzen Stadium on Black Friday, followed by a civil war 2.0 in Las Vegas for the conference championship like that still could happen and maybe we'll get there like maybe this college football season can salvage itself but i have to be honest with you if it's going to salvage itself it's going to come by virtue of the players and the coaches and the teams getting it done it's not going to come because hey college football was so beautifully aligned and the conferences had it all together and they all figured it out no that's not going to happen uh the way that it should Uh, the way that it has in some other seasons. Like, you know, part of the beauty that I find in every college football season, every NBA season, NFL season, I've been doing this too long, uh, but the beauty of it is, like, we're reminded when the season comes along that this is why we spend the entire offseason talking about, you know, who's going to beat who, who's going to play here, personnel moves, recruiting moves, coaching moves. Uh, you know, conference uh, affiliation, realignment, expansion, those are all new things. But I'm reminded as every season comes along that, you know, part of the beauty and part of the, uh, the wonderful element of sports, we all know it's the games. It's what the Little League World Series reminded us of over the weekend as Lewis Lappy hits a walk-off home run to win the Little League World Series. Like, why you're pitching to that guy, that's a whole other segment. But the truth is, like, the games of that, the 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 actual competition, the the pitcher against the hitter, the fielders in the outfield, uh, the offense against the defense, the quarterback uh, coming to the line of scrimmage and changing the play. That's the stuff that we all look forward to every week. 
and we show up at the stadium or we sit in our living room ready to watch it. And I certainly can tell you that I'm in the press box and I will be in the press box this week during several week one games. I'm going to go to a bunch of them because I miss college football. But I'm, but I'm literally going to go going, all right, can the football itself save us from this other stuff? Because this other stuff, this other nonsense, really, I don't care if you're with the haves or the have-nots. You can't be happy if you're an Oregon fan and you're watching the disintegration of the Pac-12 conference and the uncertainty around the ACC and Stanford and Cal, the uncertainty around Washington State and Oregon State. You cannot be happy with the landscape. You cannot be happy with the ecosystem if it's spit this at us or vomited this at us you know, all off season, and then go into this season and go, okay, now it's supposed to be about the football. Well, in theory, yeah, it's supposed to be about the football, but if we're being real with each other, we have arrived at this week one of the college football season, uh, you know, facing relative uncertainty, facing an unknown future, and, and frankly, now we've got a major head coach, a Power Five conference head coach in Jim Harbaugh at Michigan coming out and saying, you know what, he supports av- athletes uh, being involved in a revenue share. Now, it explains why everybody's chasing the money, and it explains why everybody wants to be in the Big Ten Conference or the SEC in particular. When it comes time to ha- to pay the athletes, you're going to have to have a pool of reserves to draw upon. Like, this is just the, I don't want to say the tip of the iceberg, but this is the beginning of what we're going to see college athletics morph into. And I have to be honest with you, like, I grew up and fell in love with college football because I love the competition. I love Keith Jackson and Woe Nelly on a Saturday. I loved watching Charles White run the football for USC, even though I wasn't a USC fan. I, wa- I loved watching John Elway at Stanford. I, anytime there was a game on and, you know, on my TV as I was flipping by on a Saturday, I would stop and watch it because I was dragged into it, not because of conference affiliation, not become as, uh, because of name, image, likeness, or the transfer portal. I was sucked into it literally because the athletes were so compelling and the game so entertaining and, you know, the outcome so exciting that you had no other choice. I'm hopeful that this college football season could do it for us. But I watched some of the week zero action, and I have to be honest with you, it was still in the background, wasn't it? It was being talked about on the broadcast. It was being bantered about on social media. It was swimming around my head as I was looking at the games going, you know, hey, USC uh, looks pretty good in the second half against San Jose State. But, you know, in this final season of the Pac-12 conference or the Pac-12 as we once knew it, uh, what's going to happen and who will capture our attention? I want to talk a lot about that on today's show we got great guests today. We're going to get a visit from Eric Prisbell, who is the senior college football writer for On3 Sports. He covers the business of college athletics. We'll also go to Arizona State, where, oh, wow, don't even get me started on Herm Edwards. Hode Rabino of Devil's Digest is going to join us at 4 o'clock to talk about Herm Edwards and the hangover that is afflicting Arizona State athletics. If I can pivot for just a minute here. Like, if you look at what Arizona State Athletics uh, endured over the weekend, I have no other choice but to feel empathy for the players and the coaches who are out there for Arizona State. It wasn't uh, Kenny Dillingham's fault that Arizona State ends up the subject of an NCAA violation uh, and an investigation. It's not the players' faults. Uh, these are players who had nothing to do with what Herm Edwards or his assistant coaches did or did not do while they were there. And, in fact, a, a, a large number of them weren't even on campus uh, they join Arizona State after Kenny Dillingham comes over. But if we can just look at the dumpster fire on top of the train wreck that the Herm Edwards era was, what we have is we have a coach 
who allegedly broke rules. We have assistant coaches who are just following his orders. Now, said coach eventually gets fired, mostly because he didn't perform. Let's be real. Herm Edwards didn't get fired because of an NCAA violation. Herm Edwards got fired because he didn't win enough football games and also had an NCAA investigation. So he leaves. He gets paid even though he's leaving. He doesn't get, uh, you know, even though he could be fired with cause and Arizona State could have fought him on that, you know, it didn't have the outcome of the NCAA investigation yet. They let him go. Herm Edwards walks away with all his money. Herm Edwards ends up on ESPN talking about football. His assistant coaches go get other jobs. They're fine. Everybody's good except the players who get left behind, and in particular some players at Arizona State who had nothing to do with this and were nowhere near the scene of the crime end up holding the bag. As Arizona State's athletic director, Ray Anderson, informs his players, informs his coaches, that they will self-impose a bowl ban in year one of the Kenny Dillingham era. Now, Kenny Dillingham's reaction uh, as he was finding out the news was, uh, was uh, I guess, predictable. He looked uh, unhappy with his athletic director. He looked fired up and looked like he was going to go off to practice and have a very distracted practice. Uh, Dillingham's agent deserves a an assist on this one because Kenny Dillingham's agent had the foresight to negotiate into his contract uh, a clause that gives Kenny Gillingham an extra year on his contract, even um, if there is a you know a bowl a self-imposed bowl ban or a bowl ban. So Kenny Dillingham's going to get an, a six-year deal instead of a five-year deal. Good for him, but he's still fired up because he recruited players, especially twenty seniors uh, that are on this roster, and he told returning players that they were going to have a chance to compete and that they were going to go compete at the highest level. And they're being told three or four days before the start of their season that, hey, we're going to self-impose a bowl ban. And, uh, you know, they realize that they're probably not going to be great on the field. They uh, want to uh, soften the blow of the NCAA uh, infractions and and violation and punishment. So they're going to uh, self-impose a bowl ban. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that a lot of schools do in order to signal to the NCAA um, infractions committee that, hey, we're serious, uh, we're going to fall on the sword a little bit here. And so they're going to do that. But, you know, it, it raises so many questions about, you know, who ends up holding the bag in this situation. Because clearly, even though Herm Edwards and his coaching staff uh, committed the alleged infractions, even though Herm Edwards and his athletic director, Ray Anderson, were the two people who were mostly in charge during that time, the players themselves and the new coach who happened to be at a different school when all this went on end up, you know, stuck with the punishment. And further, I don't even think it's the coach. It's the players themselves who won't have the ability to go out this season knowing that if they win six games or more, they're going to go to a bowl. It just feels silly. It's another example of the stuff we've been talking about in the offseason when it comes to the NCAA, just really ridiculous when it comes to the hypocrisy of what goes on in the NCAA. And the hypocrisy, frankly, when you drill down on, uh, you know, looking at what's happening in college athletics and you're going, okay, that, you know, the players matter, student athletes, they matter, uh, the coaches matter. Uh, but ultimately what the athletic departments and the athletic directors and the university presidents care about mostly is money. And Arizona State, in this case, trying to avoid a major financial penalty that could come along 
with their NCAA infractions. Steven, I got to go to you on this one. Uh, let's start first with Ray Anderson, Arizona State Athletic Director, Herm Edwards, the punishment handed down. It just feels ridiculous to me that Arizona State players are going to get stuck holding the bag on this one. Yeah, and it was with all the momentum that Kenny Dillingham came in with and all the excitement that he was bringing to the program. And then just to know, you know what, there's no chance you go to the bowl game. Like, that is the one thing that I think that they were going for is the goal was, hey, let's try to get to six wins. Let's have a bowl game. Let's get some momentum going into the next season and really put a stamp on, you know, a, a revival of the program because Herm Edwards really put it down in a bad spot. It is disappointing. It's disappointing for the players. It's disappointing for the coaching staff. And it's just one of those things. Another another reason, another example of why the NCAA is just a really messed up or, like organization and the fact that, the prior coaching staff can do wrong things and then future coaching staffs and players get punished for it. And then that coaching staff, her members can just go on ESPN and spout off about all the, uh, you know, the morals and the ethics of football and how it's all good when you in fact were breaking rules and was a terrible coach as well. Like it's just the whole thing. Just, it just bothers me that he can just go on there and then, you know, he's going to be looked at as an analyst, and we just won't even think about it twice, that he failed as a coach in the NFL and then out at college, and now in college. I think Ray Anderson, the athletic director, needs to go. And I'll ask our guest coming up at 4 o'clock who covers Arizona State sports if that is the sentiment shared by Arizona State fans. But I'm left thinking uh, about a couple of things. First and foremost, um, there there's major hypocrisy in college athletics. We can all see the hypocrisy is right in front of us. Um, they are the, the universities are chasing money. The university president and chancellors, all they want is their athletic department to be with the haves, not the have-nots. They're chasing money. You've got athletic directors who are acting like they care about student-athletes right up until the point where they, they inform the head coach that, they're, you know, we're not going, we're going to self-impose a bowl ban and we're going to punish the kids who are part of the program now rather than maybe take the bowl ban last year Take the bull ban in, you know, Herm Edwards, what would have been Herm Edwards last season. Uh, I think it's a, it's a massive misfire and a major disservice to, to players. And then you got a coach like Jim Harbaugh who operates a little differently. Like, I think there are some coaches that are out there in major college athletics that, that will simply play by different rules because they're such a big name. They have such uh, leverage in their job. Uh, and Jim Harbaugh is one of those people. I'm not going to say he's untouchable because nobody really is. But Jim Harbaugh is as close to untouchable as, you, as it possibly gets. So he's coming out today, and I think he's you know talking into a, a, a space where athletes really want to hear this. Athletes want to hear that they're going to revenue share. Like that's that's a that's music to their ears because I think ultimately where this is all headed in the short term is for athletes to get paid. But we have this semi-professional professional thing going on that we all know is more professional than not when it when it comes to looking at college athletics it's just more professional than it is not the athletes are traveling like they are uh, paid employees of the school you don't ask a uh, volunteer or a student athlete to give up class time and jet around the country drag yourself all over the country playing these non-conference and conference games you don't ask um, you know non-employees to put in you know, 70-hour work weeks, 60-hour work weeks, whatever a college athlete's uh, workload ends up being when it comes to the the uh, athlete part of the student-athlete. Uh, we all know that they look more like employees and they act more like employees than anything. So it really is a professional 
sports league. And and everybody's going to talk about this being the last year of true amateurism. I think that ship sailed long ago. I think it's been a while that athletes have been operating as if, as if they are professionals in the college space. And I think the college programs have taken advantage of that, and I think they've exploited athletes. And I think we all know that there's a lot of empathy for name image like this. There's a lot of empathy for the transfer portal. A lot of people support athletes in that way. I know I do, but I think in the end what I'm looking at is I'm looking at a college game that has been so poorly managed by the NCAA and its members. I'm not letting the university presidents and chancellors off the hook on this one. That a college game that has been so badly mismanaged has turned into a semi-professional disaster. And so much so that we don't even know what it's going to look like in a year or two. We don't even know three years from now, will there be 24 teams, will it be 60 teams, five years from now, 10 years from now? We have no idea what this thing's going to look like. And, and it's not because the world is changing so rapidly. It's because the college game changed too slowly and was too slow to come to grips with what it was and what it what it obviously wanted to be. And so we're watching this transformation of college athletics that is uh, moving like a wrecking ball right now. And the Pac-12 conference gets disintegrated. Some schools get left behind. Others are all just clamoring for partial shares just to be included in the Power Five uh, conference ranks because they know that being there versus not there can mean the difference between survival or or the death of your program. And so what we have is this really unhealthy ecosystem that, you know, we're all going to pretend like these games this season are the most important thing and they matter and they're going to take us away from, you know, all of the uh, nonsense. But in the end, I'm left thinking about college athletics as we once knew it. And I'm looking at the, the lack of leadership at the NCAA level, the lack of leadership period in college football, and the lack of leadership on the individual campuses that have led us to this point of delineation where what we once knew to be college football is no longer. I still am excited and hopeful that the week one games uh, especially can help remind us of what, like the beauty of college athletics and can help remind us, as we were reminded over the weekend, as Arizona State's players got informed, hey, you're not, you have no ability to go to a bowl game, not because of something you did, but because of something you know the coach that was hired before many of you got here did. Uh, I, I hope that this week and this season takes us away from some of this nonsense because the grown-ups in the room uh, have not been acting much like grown-ups. we got a great show for you today. Eric Prisbell on 3 Sports will be with us to talk about uh, the, the business of college football. Uh, we're going to talk also with Hode Rabino. He's got boots on the ground. He was at the news conference. He was at the practice where Kenny Dillingham's uh, coaching staff got uh, informed that uh, they were not going to go to a bowl game, and the players got told they're not going to a bowl game. We'll also talk about Gloria Navarez. She is the Mountain West Conference Commissioner. She was on campus today in Corvallis to visit with Oregon State officials. What are they plotting? We will find out coming up. For those of you on the Oregon State front, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to give you a little tidbit. Oregon State fans, I know you're worried. I know that you're concerned about, you know, that you got the Pac-12 conference has left you and Washington State behind. I think the Cougar fans, the Beaver fans are tremendously worried, looking for some good news. I'll just tell you this. I, while I know that Oregon State and Washington State are listening to the Mountain West Conference and they are listening to the American or the AAC as it's known, listening to their commissioner give his pitch, I would, I would caution you against uh, declaring, you know, the, the path for Oregon State and Washington State is completely dead. They are 
going to try a rebuild first. Now, it's an ambitious rebuild, but I, for me, as I look at what Oregon State and Washington State are up against, it's not all that different than what they've been up against historically, even in the Pac-12 conference. You know, they had facilities that weren't on par with other universities. They had, uh, you know, budgets that weren't on par with some of the other universities. And they had leadership that in some cases was not on par with some of the other universities. But they tried to find a way. And in some times and in some way, you could say that Oregon State and Washington State uh, made more with less than anybody else in the Pac-12 conference. Mike Leach having success for an extended period of time. And what Jonathan Smith has done at Oregon State is nothing short of remarkable. But I know they're listening to the Mountain West Conference make a pitch. I asked a source, is that pitch more about, hey, come join the Mountain West Conference? Is it about, hey, Mountain West Conference, come merge with what was the Pac-2 or the Pac-4 or the Pac-whatever-it's-going-to-be? And I was told that that conversation is more along the lines of, hey, let's open a conversation and talk about this. So I think at this point, all things are on the table, and Oregon State and Washington State – for as much trouble as they may be in, they they uh, obviously have their backs against the wall. They're obviously negotiating from a position of weakness. They're obviously trying to conduct this football season and, and go out and matter on the field with you know relative uncertainty about their future going on in the background. For all that stuff going on, I feel like those programs uh, are going to try to do something ambitious, that they're going to make an attempt at least as plan A to do a rebuild that they're going to lean into the assets that they see remaining in the Pac-12 conference and go, okay, we've been in this position before. And in that way and in that sense, Oregon State and Washington State are probably in a position that is familiar on some level uh, to many of the people involved with with that project. I'll keep you apprised of it. Uh, We're going to get a visit on tomorrow's show from Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president. He is the president of the university. He'll be joining us right here on the program to talk about it. we got great shows all week. The bald-faced truth. Leave it here. Eric Prisbell on three sports coming up. I'm hoping that this college football season reminds us of uh, the beauty of college football. Is, uh, is is that too much to ask? Like, I, I've spent way too much time focused on the business of college athletics. I, I like the business of it. I understand the business drives things. But I, I want it to... Uh, I want it to feel like college football again. Will it feel like college football this season? We'll talk about that on today's show. Our next guest, Eric Prisbell, is a a college business reporter at On3. He's their senior writer. He's previously worked at the Sports Business Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today. He's a Jersey guy. Can't remember what exit he uh, lived off of as a kid, but uh, Eric Prisbell joining us now. What exit in Jersey? You know, we, we live on the parkway, John. It was the exit 60, 69 down in, in the Jersey Shore. We're going back <laughs> a long ways now, but uh, I could talk exits with you. Yeah, I love Okay. Jersey. All right, give me an idea because, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, it was a guilty pleasure, but I got into the Jersey Shore show. You know, did you know people like, uh, like the characters on Jersey Shore? Not really. You know, I never watched the show. I heard a lot about it and everything, but, you know, I had my own experiences with with the Jersey Shore. I worked at an amusement park for four years, right on the beach. I was a okay. carnival barker. Carnival barker, <laughs> absolutely loved it. Best job in the world. And I worked with a, a future NBA player, Troy Murphy, who played, you know, with the Warriors, yeah. with the Lakers. Notre Dame. And Notre Dame he, guy. Yeah, exactly. So we were close. We used to play basketball with the crew every night at midnight after everything closed. One time I beat him one-on-one 
in a game. It was just a mir- miracle. And he got so mad, he kicked the ball into the ocean. Um, we had a blast. <laughs> we had an absolute blast. I didn't expect to be you know, diving into that today, no. but that that's a great topic. That's fun. I love that. Uh, Eric, what do you make of this, what, of everything that's going on? Just the business of college football right. and this, this season as a final act. I know you wrote about it, but what do you make of the landscape right now? Oh, boy. It's it's a mess, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. You got hypocrisy in full view right now. The curtain has been peeled back, John. And, you know, just try saying the phrase amateur enterprise while keeping a straight face. You just can't do it. Nobody can do it. And, you know, I almost applaud Florida State in banging the table and saying, we want more money, we deserve more rights revenue because we're the biggest brand in the ACC. They're not hiding it. They're not the only ones thinking that. They're just the ones saying it right now. And other schools are thinking it as well. And and so TV rights revenue, as you know, I know, and everybody knows right now, is driving all of these moves, these realignment moves, and making a landscape where we're going to have cross-country trips from Seattle to Piscataway, New Jersey, my alma mater at Rutgers University, uh, you know, for volleyball and all these other sports, uh, at a time when the athletes making those trips will receive zero dollars and no slice of that revenue pie. I mean, that's hypocrisy, and it's going to change, just not soon enough. And that's why, you know, I applaud coaches like Jim Harbaugh and other industry leaders certainly ones that I've talked to um, on the athletic director front, commissioner front, and, you know, Mike Oresco, Gloria Navarez of the Mountain West Conference, Joe Castiglione in Oklahoma, and they say now's the time to at least explore, explore. Let's explore what a revenue model would look like because it's time for the athletes to get a slice of the revenue pie. So this feels like the end of an era, this, this college football season. You know, we're going to 12 teams in the CFP. We're going to the era of, of two super conferences. One of them will be coast to coast. Uh, we are going to have incremental movement forward toward perhaps an employee model, perhaps a revenue sharing model, and certainly broadly looking at the space, a more professionalized landscape. And that's where it's all headed. There's good and bad. It cuts both ways. But for the athlete, at least financially, I think they'll have a piece of the, the revenue pie, you know, if not next year, then certainly maybe by 2025 or 26, and that's a good thing. I want to I go back to something that you wrote, and I'll tweet this piece out for our listeners, but you, you looked at the 1984 Supreme Court case that an 80, now 88-year-old Oklahoma attorney named Andrew Coates was involved in. This is the this is the thing that released the tiger, so to speak. Uh, you know, help us understand that lawsuit. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was I, I loved interviewing Andrew Coates uh, last week, John. Because I mean, this guy was at the center. He played the leading role in the U.S. Supreme Court case, the landmark ruling back in 1984, uh, that unleashed all of the TV rights revenue and started the ball rolling on all of this. Because before 1984. The NCA had a monopoly on the TV rights space, and they limited the number of appearances schools could make on TV. It's almost it's hard to even get your mind wrapped around how how warped that was. He was successful in winning that that uh, that case, 
representing both Oklahoma and Georgia by a seven to do to two margin. And one of the, the justices, Byron White, told him a few months after that, you may have won this case, but you will regret this. You're going to regret it. He has not regretted it personally, but he acknowledges and he acknowledged to me that, yes, it released the tiger, as he put it. It created this monster that we're seeing now. And he, and he never could have envisioned the rights revenue escalating to this degree. What we're seeing now with, you know, TV networks playing puppet master behind the scenes and, you know, Fox and ESPN uh, controlling the landscape, essentially, in many ways. Uh, and he feels it's, it, college sports is not in a good place. I mean, it's, it's professional at the highest level. Amateur athletics is, is dead. Uh, and, and he, he kind of half jokingly said, like, I screwed up college football enough. You could hardly fix this thing. Um, you know, but there's a tinge of truth in that. And, you know, it, traditions have gone by the wayside, uh, regionality, kind of the quirks and the charm of the sport that we all really fell in love with, you know, anybody who's involved with college athletics and, and that's all going away and in its place, you know, we're going to have maybe a, a more sterile environment, certainly a more professionalized environment. Um, but the one constant will be, we're all going to still watch it. There's no question about that. Do you think that, you know, we've heard some talk like Chip Kelly coming out and saying, you know, football should just do its own thing. As athletes move to get paid, as you see a revenue share, uh, you know, come to fruition, I do think you're going to see football players treated differently because the revenue is buried in football. Do you think that will cause football to splinter away or is that a more complex conversation? It's extremely complex. Uh, the, the more people I talk with about it, um, you know, including Tom McMillan, who's the CEO of Lead One Association, and he's also the former U.S. congressman. Uh, and I think ultimately, by bringing all NIL activity in-house, the collectives right now are kind of third parties. Some have close relationships with the schools. Some don't. They all act like they don't, but they do. Bring it all in-house formally. And it adds credibility to what you're doing. It streamlines the operation, gets everybody rowing in the same direction. Why the NCAA has not done that already is beyond my ability to understand it. And, and people I talk to as well, industry leaders, they don't get it either. I don't see the downside of it. It would also, by doing that, you also ensure, you have to ensure that you're Title IX compliant. Because at that point, everything's under the umbrella of the university. Um, I ultimately think when we're talking about what's going to propel or, or trigger a breakaway to some degree, I think Title IX, there's going to be a reckoning around Title IX. And, you know, people talk about it now, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. And you look a year or two down the road, and when we have a revenue-sharing model, the, 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 the leverage that SEC football players have, compared to other athletes, either at their school or other football players elsewhere, you know, not in the Big Ten, uh, it's significant. And how do, you, how do you square that with Title IX compliance when you're talking about softball players elsewhere and the need for them to get, you know, an equal amount of, of resources and, and perhaps revenue? So I think that might, might spur, you know, and trigger a, a breakaway. But I think it's a complicated model. Uh, and I don't think we're quite there yet. But before we get to that point, I, I think what we could see is 
what I'm, I think I'm going to write about if this ACC moves go, move goes through this week, that by le- by abandoning Oregon State and Washington State, and you combine that with the fact that Florida State's banging on the table saying we're the biggest brand in town, we want more money, uh, the rank and file schools at Power Four conferences now, uh, if you don't have a brand name and you don't have a TV, TV market, those two things, if you don't have either one of them, don't get too comfortable because this is really shaky, ta- shaky territory for you. And, and you could see what just happened to Oregon State and Washington State. And, and right now they don't have a home. They're going to find one, but, you know, it's not going to be in a Power Four conference, at, at least in the short term. Eric Prisbell, On3 Sports, senior college uh, business writer, is with us. Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West Conference Commissioner, is on campus today here in Oregon. Uh, at Oregon State, uh, making her pitch. She had the University of New Mexico president with her. Uh, I asked what the pitch was, and I was told that it's it's not come join us. It's not let's merge. It's more of a let's start a conversation. So I'm asking you, because you, you know the landscape you're talking to people. What should the conversation be when it comes to Oregon State, Washington State, and what should they plot? in the short term, long term, if you were advising America, what do you tell them? If I was advising the schools, the biggest, well, the biggest question I have, and I have a ton of respect for Gloria as well as Mike Oresco, and, and the an AAC source told me today that he is, in fact, planning to make campus visits out there to the Pacific Northwest, unlikely to be this week. We got the CFP meetings, you know, down here in Dallas where I am in a couple of days. But if I were those two schools, the biggest question I have, there's a lot of them, but the question I have, okay, you know, the, with the Mountain West Conference, the media rights deal expires in three years. Uh, the AAC, the rights deal, I believe, goes through 2032 with ESPN. So how, does it cut both ways? I've been trying to look at, look at that dynamic, and you could say, hey, if we bolster up the, the Mountain West right now, and maybe assume the branding from the Pac-12. And I, I've talked to Gloria, and she really puts a lot of weight in that branding of a 108-year-old conference that she's intimately familiar with. We, we know that. Um, but what, what does that mean, that the, that the media rights deal is up in three years? Is that a good thing, or is it a question mark? Because where will Lanier, the Lanier TV um, aspect be? in that time period you know are there going to be partners on the linear side that are willing to shell out the money or you know are they going to take more of a conservative approach at that point and streaming is going to emerge more at the forefront i don't know i mean there's kind of cross currents in that in that direction i'd like to get an answer on that which way that cuts now if you go to the aac you know you're you know that you have a linear package a really good one with espn through 2032 um you know you get a little bit more money annually in terms of the revenue i don't think that's make or break but i'd be looking at that rights package that expires after 2026 and saying okay what's going to be the potential there and the answer to that question you know might might help me decide that recruiting that recruiting pitch but it's it's going to be interesting mike oresco and and gloria because they're both really smart and you know what i mean and and you know i'm really curious how that plays out I'm trying to figure out because, you know, I think Gloria's right in that there are some assets buried in the conference that uh, are worth not abandoning. There's an emergency fund there. There's about $60 million in NCAA tournament units that will come in in the next six years. Um, there's if, if you got creative with it and you said, okay, we're going to create a Pac-12 
division in the Mountain West Conference. And, you know, you splintered off some schools. You could salvage some of that, uh, at least in the short term. But I'm just trying to figure out from Oregon State and Washington State's standpoint, is it more important just to get footing? And, and as you said, they can't control the TV market. All they can control is brand. So is the right. better brand move to stay, you know, packed, Two and it's us us against the world and we're going to build this thing back or is it to take relegation in the Mountain West or the AAC and because the the media money may not even be enough to make you like you know you might just go hey we're better off just taking our NCAA tournament units and we'll figure it out in two years I don't know I think it's an incredibly complex conversation yeah. I've got Kirk Schultz the Washington State president on the show tomorrow and I'm wrestling with like how many how many segments can I have him for because I yeah. got so many questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I know. Yeah, I keep looking at that meteorite deal. That's the one difference I see between Mountain West and AAC. There's there's some similarities, um, but I I'm curious from your positioning in Oregon, John. You know, I'm looking at it from the conference perspective, but from the school's perspective, have they even gotten to the point? where they're weighing Mountain West versus AAC, or are they still yeah. holding out hope that, hey, we can we could rebuild the Pac-12? Are they Because I'm, I think that's a lost cause, but are the, do they still have hope of that? I don't think they've closed the door on rebuilding, and I think they continue to say that's plan A. And I think they're being told that because they're trying to hold the assets of the conference and see what's there and sort through it. Because if they say, I think if they say, hey, we're entertaining joining the Mountain West, the other members of the conference are going to go, great, let's just divide it up 12 ways, we'll see you later. And the NCAA tournament units would actually go back, they would revert to Arizona and Oregon and whoever earned them, UCLA in a large part, and and uh, Oregon State and Washington State would be giving up those assets. So I think they are saying plan A as a rebuild Maybe as a strategy play, but maybe because they don't know yet. And that's why I asked, you know, what was the meeting? What's the tone of the meeting? And and I was told the tone is let's start a conversation. But yeah, you know, they need to get going with this, don't they? I mean, they can't leave this hanging overhead for very long, do you think? Well, everybody's waiting on the ACC. We've been waiting on them for a while now. And, like, it's about time. Everybody just either close the door completely or let's get a vote. You know, and I think if they do, in fact, vote, they wouldn't take the vote, a formal vote, if they don't know how that's going to uh, what the verdict's going to be. I just, you know, all the momentum like we both have heard and been told, it's all moving toward, you know, Stanford, Cal and SMU going to the ACC. But where is that one vote going to flip? You know, I was told UNC and NC State are basically tethered at the hip. Uh, so what does, that, what does that mean? Is Clemson going to flip? Is Florida State? Why would they flip? Um you know, so I'm just not – I'm not as we know with realignment, you know, things could change at the 11th hour, as we saw a couple – a few Fridays ago, you know, when everything went down in the in the Pac-12. Um, and I, I, the one thing I'm wondering about, and you may have the answer, is if the ACC says thanks but no thanks on Cal and Stanford, and Stanford says we're going to go independent in the short term, what does the media rights situation for them look like in an independent – uh, an independent. How would we be able to watch their their inventory? Yeah, I think it's. A, I think that's a tough one because I again, yeah. let's go back to brand. Their football brand. They picked a an unfortunate time to be not very good in football, and, and I can't right. see. You know, I otherwise I think they'd be in the Big Ten, don't you think? 
No, no question. I'm and I'm, and I'm still even the condition of their football program the way it is right now. I am surprised that the Big Ten did not say we want Stanford and Cal for the long term, long haul. Here we're gonna do, we're gonna get every major market up and down the West Coast case closed. And I am surprised that it didn't because everybody knows the real line is not done. It's not done. So I am surprised that they didn't gobble up Stanford and Cal. Um, at this point, I understand why the preference was Oregon and Washington, but but um, here they are, you know, Stanford with their Directors Cup dominance, with their world class athletes galore across campus, and you know, finest combination of athletics and academics in the country. They don't have a Power Four home, you know. I keep saying Power Four, I got to get used to that, but they, they don't have a home right now, and they may they they may not have one, but you know, momentum is is pointing to the ACC. Eric Prisbell on 3 Sports. Thank you, my friend. Good to hear your voice. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. There he is. Read him. Follow him on Twitter. Eric Prisbell had a uh, great story today about sort of the, uh, the final act of college football. Coming up, our big splash. And I'll tell you, what I really needed over the weekend was this Little League World Series. And it delivered. I got to be honest, I was watching USC's defense against San Jose State in Week 0. It's it's a little more active. It's a little more athletic. Uh, still made some mistakes. Still didn't look great. San Jose State hit him for a couple of big shots down the field and uh, got uh, 21 points in the loss. Uh, Caleb Williams looked fine. Four touchdown passes. He looked like Caleb Williams. But uh, the bigger takeaway was, you know, you see and you hear from coaches who will say all the time that the biggest improvement that they see teams make comes in week one to week two. I was thinking about that as I was watching San Jose State because San Jose State's week two will actually come in week one against Oregon State, which uh, will enter the game not having played a game. Uh, Oregon State should win that game on the road at San Jose State. But it just was a uh, it was a reminder that uh, nothing's certain in college football. And I kind of looked at the first half, especially of the San Jose State uh uh, USC game, and I thought, um, you know, this was uh, this was maybe an example of uh, of the uh, everything that you you kind of worry about if you're a head coach. And Jonathan Smith has to be looking at San Jose State, going, okay, if they take a big step forward, and uh, we're playing a week sloppy week one game procedurally, um, that could be a game at San Jose State. I'll keep an eye on it though. Uh, I'm very interested to see DJ Uyunglele in his debut at Oregon State. I'm also interested to see how crisp and how good Oregon looks in its game against Portland State. We'll talk about that game all week long here on the show. And we got a visit on Friday from Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, who I thought was really good in talking about his expectations and what he'll be looking at in week one in this game against Portland State. He's looking to say, are, are they lined up? Do we know what we're doing? Uh, are they taking care of the stuff that you have to take care of before you snap the ball? Uh, and I think if you focus on that stuff and you are the better team, you're probably well served. But um, really interesting to kind of uh, look at the weekend in week zero and know that more college football is coming this week in week one. But also really interesting to see what happened yesterday as Lewis Lappy and the team from California, Southern California team, uh, walked off with the Little League World Series championship, literally walked off. Challenged him, and this game! 
walk-off home run. California walking off Lewis Lappy. And by the way, I, I kept thinking, why would you pitch to that guy? He's got five home runs in the Little League World Series. He goes like 6-1, he is a uh, He's a battleship at the plate. And I looked at where the catcher sat, sat up uh, and positioned himself prior to that pitch. And uh, I put it on Instagram, on my Instagram, and I put it on TikTok. If you want to check it out, you can watch the catcher in particular. Catcher set up like six inches off the plate. Pitcher misses right down the middle. And Curacao, who had not allowed a home run in the Little League World Series, allowed only one. And it was the home run that broke their back. And uh, walk-off winner, great tournament. Um, I was watching carefully to see if he touched all the bases and home plate because, you know, you saw the fiasco that happened in the in the earlier in the week against Tennessee. And But uh, Lewis Lappy touched them all. And I needed that. I don't know, Stephen, did you need that? I needed a little bit of joy. Um, I, I didn't. I, you know, I'm not a big Little League World Series guy. I mean, it's a cool story and all, but it just, I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me, John. Little League World Series, I, just, I cannot get into it for whatever reason. Maybe it's just because I was jealous I never got there when I was in Little League, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't need it. it. But, you know, it's a great story that he just keeps hitting bombs, though. I mean, it's cool for him, but what, you know, it is what it is for me. Yeah. Sorry. He had a bunch of bombs. He, uh, it was joyful, though. It was joyful to see a bunch of kids running around the field. Someday the little leaguers are, are going to want to get paid, and uh, we're going to say they're professionals. NIL they, deals. Let's go. They deserve to share in the success that ABC and ESPN, was the money they were making off their backs. Uh, that day is coming, but that day wasn't over the weekend, as the little leaguers are just happy to win the game and get a, uh, get a snack afterwards. All right, coming up, we're going to go to Arizona, where people are all kinds of fired up. What are you looking forward to this college football season? 503-417-7575. We'll dive into the Ducks and the Beavers. Where else is your mind? I'll tell you where I've been th- what I was thinking about on Sunday was the raw deal that Kenny Dillingham got at Arizona State. Came in, first year head coach, brought a bunch of new players with him. We all knew the Herm Edwards thing was going on in the background. We all knew it could be uh, potentially problematic. Ray Anderson, the athletic director at Arizona State, informing his football coach that they would self-impose a bowl ban. Kenny Dillingham talking to reporters yesterday. Oh, it's, it's not great, especially on a Tuesday for practice. But it is what it is. Like I told the guys, we, we can't control it. Like you can't control it. Not one person in the country feels bad for us. Matter of fact, more people are happy about it. Because like I said, people love to see other people down. People feed off of it. It's the world we live in. And if we allow people to feed off of this circumstance for us, then that's on us. And it's my job to uh, try to get our team and rally our team uh, behind each other to go compete and go work at the highest level. Kenny Dillingham, I got to tell you, I do feel bad for Arizona State, especially the players who didn't do anything wrong. Like, they didn't do anything wrong. Hood Rubino runs a website called Devil's Digest. He has his finger on the pulse of Arizona State sports. He's popped on with us, been kind enough to give us some time. Hood, what, how is this going over in your territory? Uh, thanks for having me, and John. Um, yeah, as far as you know, the the mood in 10 p.m. I mean, sure, emotions are still uh, pretty raw. I mean, this happening. Uh, only only yesterday, I mean, you thought of a Friday news dump being bad. Try a Sunday early morning one. Uh, that's uh, pro- probably 
uh, even a tad worse. But um, I think that when you look at just the here and now, uh, Kenny Dillingham, who had his uh, scheduled weekly press conference today, was very happy with the level of resiliency that the team displayed overall. I mean, he expected a real bad uh, practice. He used a different word, which I won't use on radio. Uh, and uh, that uh, obviously did take place on Sunday when the news was just literally hours old, but uh, he uh, really liked how the team bounced back. Starting quarterback Jaden Rashada had an outstanding session, according to Dillingham, uh, maybe one of his best sessions in practices this month. So uh, it seems like Arizona State is able to uh, bounce bounce back from uh, the, I would say, blindsided uh, adverse news that they received. And look, I'm, I mean, I'm realistic here. I know that a cupcake, a cupcake game against Southern Utah is really not going to show you how great this team can be, both mentally and just in pure X's and O's fashion. We'll know a whole lot more uh, with games against Oklahoma State, Fresno State, and USC all taking place in the following weeks. But uh, you know, right now everybody is uh, everybody is really trucking along, and Kenny Dillingham and and the players for that matter were very very pragmatic uh, with what they said. Uh, just hours after receiving that postseason bad news. Hode, let me ask you, uh, the frustration level, is it being directed at Ray, Ray Anderson, the athletic director, at all? Because I look at him and I say, you know, this was his coach, Herm Edwards. This is ultimately mm-hmm. his call to self-impose or not self-impose. And if I'm a player on the roster, I'm I'm pretty upset, and I, I want to know who I should be mad at. He He becomes the guy to me. 100%, John, and and I think uh, there's also a lot of anger uh, about university president uh, um, Dr. Michael Crow, who is Ray Anderson's boss, ultimately. Um, I think that Michael Crow, throughout the Ansel Bay investigation, made some really curious comments that uh, were really coddling uh, Ray Anderson and, by default, also also coddling Herm Edwards when those folks uh, definitely do not deserve any extra protection whatsoever. I mean, Michael Crow is the one that made the statement that, he really can't fault Herm Edwards because all his assistants were supposedly supposedly just running rogue, uh, allegedly breaking one recruiting by recruiting rule after another, and Herm Edwards didn't know anything about that. And that's absolutely ridiculous to even utter that or even or even to imply that. But uh, you know, I, I have a column on, on my front page of DevilsIdis.com where I just called Ray Anderson, the athletic director at Arizona State really being guilty of dereliction of duty. And specifically what I'm talking about, and I'll try to make this brief, in spring of 2022, um, Herm Edwards, understandably so, was absolutely fatigued from this Ensel Bay investigation. And the last two blows that he and the program received were seeing both their offensive coordinator, Zach Hill, resigning at the very end of, of January 2022 due to the fact that there was enough of a paper trail during the investigation that really merited him and ASU parting ways. And not even a month later, team is def- seeing his defensive coordinator and recruiting coordinator, uh, Antonio Pierce, somebody who uh, definitely was uh, the, the conductor, if you will, uh, of a lot of these alleged recruiting violations that took place that really caused investigation to begin with, uh, also uh, parting ways. And he uh, was, uh, is, still is, by the way, the linebackers coach for the for Las Vegas Raiders. So Edwards told Anderson, look, I, I had enough. I mean, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the twilight of, of my career here anyway. I really would like to resign and, and just call it a day and, let, and let, let this program have a new head coach. Now, Ray Anderson, who really protected Herm Edwards from day one, and, and as I said in my column, 
it really was a hire that reeked of nepotism. I mean, don't forget that Herm Edwards, while he was a head coach in the NFL, was a client of agent Ray Anderson. So Anderson did not accept his resignation, did not want to talk about that. But my bigger issue is over here is if you're seeing a 2022 season that is absolutely going nowhere fast, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and I'm not even, I haven't talked yet about the transfer portal just decimating uh, this roster. Why not take a self-imposed postseason ban right there, right then? You know yes. Herm Edwards is not going to be there in 2023. Okay, you know you're going to have a new head coach in, in 2023, why not give that head coach as many, or I should, say, I should say probably the least number of challenges possible so they can really start on, on the right footing. And the fact that Ray Anderson did not do that, again, in light of Herm Edwards really wanting nothing to do with the program, checked out back in the spring of 2022, that is the most egregious issue over here. So what, what does Ray Anderson do? He saddles Kenny Dillingham, well, let's face it, had a laundry list of challenges to deal with ever since he got hired uh, Thanksgiving week of 2022. And now, four days before the season opener, you're saddling him with the biggest challenge that, that he's faced to date? I mean, that is just absolutely inexcusable. And that's why myself and I think the vast majority of the Sun Devil fan base have an issue with Ray Anderson. But, John, make no mistake about it, there are plenty of complaints uh, against President uh, Michael Crow. And, you know, let's not revisit the uh, fiasco of Arizona State almost not making the migration to the Big 12 because Michael Crow wanted to hold on to the Pac-12 to dear life. Hode Rubino is our guest, covers Arizona State football, Devils Digest. Hode, the the football team itself. Some will say, Mm -hmm. hey, this is a great season to take a bowl ban because this isn't a bowl team. But, you know, I, I don't like that. I agree with you. It should have been a year ago. But give me an idea. How good could this team be? What is the ceiling for Kenny Dillingham in year one when it comes to wins and losses? Look, I, I look at the schedule. It, it's a eight, eight, eight home game schedule. I look at some game. Look at some games on the road against Cal, and maybe I even put in UCLA over there as games where I don't see ASU being, uh, you know, a two touchdown two touchdown underdog. So when you look at the totality of all that. For AC to win six games, I think that was a ceiling. I think that was a a feat that that ASU could have achieved. And as we all know, if you win six games, you're bowl eligible, and more likely you are going to see some uh, some some postseason play. So yeah, I do agree with you, John. I mean, you can't really just make that you know blanket statement that that would make people feel good, like well, you know, if you can take a postseason ban. Might as well take it in the first in the first year of a, of a brand new head coach. I never never had an head coaching experience, and maybe we shouldn't expect that much from the program. But I mean, Kenny Dillingham, and, and you know him pretty well too, John. He's he's not a defeatist. I mean, he's not somebody that is really you know holding back on what he expects from himself and what he what he expects um, you know from from his players. So I just feel that this postseason ban just being deflating in terms of the optics and just this happening four days. Uh, before the season opener, put put that all aside. This is an Arizona State team that did have a fair chance, some even say a good chance, to win six games and to be bowl eligible. So that's why having this uh, self-imposed postseason ban uh, is really, you know, quite uh, you know a shock to the system and something that that, that is upsetting the fans, um, you know, quite a bit. I'll give Kenny Dillingham and his place for that matter. They handled themselves beautifully 
yesterday after practice when when they addressed the media, uh, you you didn't hear a lot of no comments. You didn't you didn't see players sulking. You just seeing seeing players say, look, we could control, what we could control, and now we're just gonna make sure that we have the best season that we can have, regardless of the fact that we're not gonna go to a bowl game at the end of that year. Jaden Rashada at quarterback. Uh, you've seen some of him in scrimmage and practice. I've heard a lot about him. What 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 is what does he look like to you? And you know what will he be this season? Yeah, I think uh, Jaden Rashada. It is uh, ironic, or some people might say that it's maybe not so ironic that he turned in his best uh, practice back then uh, when the when the team had their Camton Arizona uh, scrimmage back on August 12th, I believe. It happened just minutes after Notre Dame transfer quarterback Drew Pine, somebody who I truly believe was the starting quarterback that Kenny Dillingham did have circled, uh, did go down with, uh, with, with a hamstring injury. And Jaden Rashada 100% took advantage of that opportunity and then some. And ever, ever since then really has been the hottest quarterback uh, in, in camp and uh, was able to distance himself eventually from returning starter uh, Trent Bourget. Um, you know, what, what you're seeing is uh, somebody who has uh, all the athletic measurements that, that you want from a quarterback. Uh, and it, you know, a lot of comparisons obviously made to Jaden Daniels, who in 2019 was the first ever true freshman quarterback to start a season opener for ASU. And here we are four years later uh, in, the, in, the, in the same scenario, aside from the fact that Jaden Rashad is not the first ever to do that. But uh, you're looking at somebody who I believe is more physically mature than Jaden Daniels was as a freshman and maybe also also mentally mature, and somebody that even though he could be the classic dual-threat quarterback, I think he does a good job uh, of, of going through his progressions. He, he has a cannon for, uh, for an arm, and just each and every day in the August practices has been making better and better decisions, and you're seeing the growth, and you're seeing, seeing the maturity. And ever since he was named uh, the starting quarterback, you just really see that level of performance uh, kick, kick into a different level. Now, look, we don't know uh, how he's going to look uh, when, when uh, live bullets are flying. And going back to my earlier point, I don't think a game against FCS opponent Southern Utah is really going to be any kind of experience you can glean much much of. But let's put it this way. Jenner Rashada has a lot of, a, a lot of toys uh, to play with. I think a, a running back group and a wide receiver group and definitely a tight end group that are all clear upgrades than, than what we saw in Tempe in 2022. So I feel that with the plethora and the complement of skill players that he has, I think General Rashada can have a, a, a pretty darn good season. But as we all know, with a true, true freshman quarterback, it's really hard uh, to put um, true expectations on, on what, what he can actually see him deliver. But I know there's a lot of optimism when it comes to Jaden Rashada and the Sun Devil offense, for that matter. This season's going to feel weird. And, you know, we can call it the swan <laughs> song for the Pac-12, the last season of the Pac-12 as we know it. Uh, the series finale, I don't know what people are going to call it, but um, it's going to feel different. And I think the different campuses have different outlooks. Oregon State may be playing with a chip on its shoulder, trying to prove something. Uh, Oregon may be going, eh, this season doesn't matter as much. You know, what we're really interested in is the long, you know, takeoff into the Big Ten. Where is Arizona State as it pertains to this season? The mentality that fans are thinking with and media and coaches and players are thinking with this season? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I really can't say that I'm hearing uh, too much narrative about, oh, this is our last year uh, in, in the Pac-12. Oh, um, you know, this is our last time going to Seattle or, or, or to the Rose Bowl. Um, not ever, but probably for, for a long, long time. 
Um, I, I really don't don't hear that much narrative. I think the narrative that really has taken over, obviously up until yesterday's news, was this this being the first year of Kenny Dillingham and being the alumnus head coach that definitely has been a breath of fresh air, a shot in the arm of the, for this program, and just uh, seeing the activate the valley uh, rally cry that Kenny Dillingham uh, really enacted uh, from day one, and seeing and seeing a massive roster overhaul, seeing him, I think doing a great job utilizing that transfer portal uh, to, to the best of his abilities and seeing some clear-cut upgrades almost at every every position of the team, I think this, this really the sense of excitement is what was really spoken in Tempe more, more than just, oh, this is our, our last year in the Pac-12, you know, l- you know l- let's make sure we make, we make it count. And maybe ASU is just in a different, uh, a different boat uh, because they're still going to have their geographical rivals, University of Arizona, obviously, as well as Utah and in Colorado, go with them to the Big 12. So maybe not as much of a drastic change as it is to other teams uh, in, in in the Pac-12. But uh, yeah, I mean, I really really haven't heard um, you know a, a lot of, a lot of talk about it. Um, you know, going back to an earlier point, I think fans, uh, when you talk about conference realignment, we're just really mad about how University President Michael Crow handled and really mishandled almost. Uh, the, the, the whole situation, but uh, yeah, I mean, at least in Tempe, I really don't hear a lot of talk about uh, you know this being the last year in the Pac-12, and we want to make sure we go out with a blaze of glory. And maybe some of it is obviously uh, yesterday's news with with the postseason ban that really puts a damper on the blaze of glory that uh, ASU may, maybe wanted to exit the conference. But again, it's just really just about the excitement about the program, about uh, a roster that's seeing. Uh, over over 50 players being newcomers to the team. I mean, those are really the talking points in Tempe. All right. Hode Rubino, Arizona State, uh, the Sun Devils. You can get them at devilsdigest.com. Good stuff from Hode. Uh, I want to ask you, what are you looking forward to this college football season? I'm looking forward to seeing Bo Nix on the field. And I think Oregon's going to go to Arizona State late in the year, and I think uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about Kenny Dillingham and Bo Nix and their relationship and – I will not be surprised if uh, Bo Nix puts, puts six touchdown passes on Kenny Dillingham's defense. Uh, Oregon State, uh, you know, licking at the chops, but uh, not going to probably get a shot at Arizona State. So Arizona State's not really a threat to get to the conference title game. But where are you when it comes to this season? I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. Let's go to Turk, who is called in from San Jose, California. Turk, what are you looking forward to? Johnny Ballgame, my man. I'm looking forward to Thursday night because there's not a big, lot of big Titans matching up on Saturday. But Florida at Utah. Utah's ranked 14th. Florida's not ranked. And, of course, I just watched Swamp Kings on ESPN Untold, which was awesome. So I got me fired up for the season. But I think that's a very interesting early season game. I'm going to be at that game. I'm interested okay. in that game as well. Uh, mostly from the standpoint of... Who's Utah going to be playing at quarterback? And I think you're right. Um, I think it's a little bit of a dicey game for the Utes. Uh, what else you got, Turk? What are you looking forward to besides Thursday? Well, I mean, Saturday. I mean, everyone's talking about Western Carolina at Arkansas, right? I mean, how could you not? Right? I mean, talk about town. <laughs> Nobody's talking about that game. Going. Hey, are you worried as an Arkansas fan? Are you worried that when the next round of of, uh, you know, basically the market consolidating, that the next round will take aim at 
programs like Arkansas and go, hey, you're not bringing as much media value to the SEC as Alabama and Georgia and LSU. You know, you're out or you got to take less. Are you concerned at all that that's the next evolution of this? Not, not at all, because Arkansas doesn't have a pro team in any sport. So that's their pro football team is their, is their college program. So they're not going anywhere. And they're solid in the SEC in basketball, and they're solid in football. Then they take a nosedive, and they come back up. It's like the stock market, up and down, up and down. There go the Razorbacks. And that's how they are. And they're not going anywhere. They could still beat Mississippi, Mississippi State, uh, Texas A&M and those teams, Vanderbilt. Come on. But that's what I'm worried. Uh, that's what I'm looking at when I look at the market, and I go, "All right, you're now seeing Florida State. Florida State is squabbling because Florida State says, "Hey, look, we bring 15 percent of the media value to the ACC's TV deal, but we only get seven percent of the payout." That's why Florida State's unhappy in the ACC. Um, I think in the Big Ten conference, you're going to see programs like Michigan and Ohio State look over at Rutgers. Look over at uh, Indiana and Purdue. Look over at Northwestern, and they're going to go, why are we sharing equally with you? We bring a lot more to the table. We're worth more. If you want to stay in this conference, you're going to have to take a reduced distribution. I do think in the SEC, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that the Arkansas fans support the program. I have no doubt that Arkansas can bring something in men's basketball. But I kind of wonder if the next uh, – you know, the next evolution of consolidation is going to be not, hey, let's squeeze out another conference, but let's squeeze within the conferences and uh, figure out who belongs and who doesn't belong. And I wonder at that point if you've got a program like Arkansas in trouble. Stephen, what are you looking forward to this college football season? I'm looking forward to what the Pac-12 does to itself. And what I mean by that is can one of the teams really elevate itself to make, to make it to the college football playoff? Because we've seen it before where the conference cannibalizes itself, and even last season, USC had a chance to get to the playoff, lose to Utah. Now Caleb Williams gets hurt, but they lost to Utah in the Pac-12 title game. I want to see if there's a team in the Pac-12 that really elevates himself and you know becomes the elite team this one season, because we all can agree the Pac-12 has a lot of hype around them. The quarterbacks are great in this conference. I want to see if one of these teams can really elevate themselves and get to the college football playoffs. I'm very fascinated with that. Keep an eye on that. I want your phone calls as well. What are you looking forward to? 503-417-7575. I want to know. What are you looking forward to this college football season? The phone number, 503-417-7575. We are on day one of week one. Oregon will play Portland State at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. Oregon State will travel to the Bay Area where they'll play San Jose State on Sunday. A rare Sunday game, but that game will be played in the broad daylight. Anna's popped into the studio. I want your phone calls. We'll take your calls. Anna's all fired up about something else, and I'll let you get to it in a second. Okay, I know you're, like, frothing about this. <laughs> she went on a rant today, and I was like, can you save it for radio? <laughs> all right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh, okay. She's all. Kind I don't of... rant that often. Well, that's why so. I said save it for radio. There's a good <laughs> conversation. I was like, you know what? This belongs on radio, not, like, why we're in the car. We shouldn't talk. Let's not waste this conversation. Let's not waste this conversation on each other. Uh, all right, let's go to the phone <laughs> lines first, and then Anna will be free to rant. Jordan's in Vancouver. Jordan, what are you looking forward to? Well, I am so upset by all this crap that's going on, but I'll tell you what I'd really love to see. I want 
Oregon State to run the table and say kind of the big finger to everybody and go to the playoffs and run it. I think that would be the best thing in the world for Jonathan Smith to do, and it would be the best thing for all the conferences to see what they've left behind. Yeah, it would be such an indictment of the system, you know, because you really do find out who your friends are amid expansion and realignment. And Oregon State's looking around going, it's just Washington State? That's the only friend that we ultimately had in the end? Um, as, you know, Oregon went off and did what was best for itself. Washington did what was best for itself. The Four Corners went off and did what was best for themselves. UCLA and USC voted, you know, two summers ago about what was best for themselves. And the Big 12 kicked the tires, you know, had a had a nibble, I'm told. This was weeks and weeks ago uh, as Oregon State had a conversation with them. But, you know, Oregon State's looking around now going, okay, uh, if our best bet is a rebuild, yeah, are they rebuilding from two or are they re- rebuilding from four? The ACC presidents were supposed to meet tonight. Uh, there was a shooting on the University of North Carolina campus today, so that meeting has been postponed. I believe they will meet tomorrow to discuss that. Um, you know, that was the right thing to do, to postpone the meeting, because football is not more important, although some people want to make it more important. Let's go to the phones. Armando's in Tigard. Armando, what's on your mind? Hey, John, thank you for taking my call. I just want to say I'm, I'm a longtime Oregon State Beaver fan, and just like the previous caller with all this realignment that's been going on, it's kind of it's got got me a little upset. But I'm really excited about the season this year, based off what they did last year, ten and three, winning the bowl game, and then getting the quarterback this year. I, I really think they got a legitimate chance to win the the Pac-12 and, and potentially be in the playoff, right? But like I said, I'm just a little uh, shaken about the whole realignment. I, I hope they find a home soon. I'm hearing things about the Big 12, but like I said, go Bees this year, Pac-12 champion. I appreciate that. appreciate the phone call, Armando in Tigard. Um, look, I think Oregon and Oregon State are both well-positioned right now to matter in this college football season. I think that they are, um, you know, it's one of these rare seasons. Maybe I can go back to like 2008, 2009, where I'm looking at the Ducks and the Beavers and going, hey, both of these things could matter in this coming football season. I've spent a lot of time staring at the master schedule. This is what I do in my uh, my little free time is taking a look at the master schedule and going, okay, which of these games is going to be like big games? And for Oregon, it comes very quickly. It's week two. It's the game at Texas Tech. And for Oregon State, it takes a little longer, but it's week five. It is the home game on a Friday night against Utah. Those are the big games in the early part of the season for Oregon, Oregon State. But I actually think Oregon State and Oregon, you know, if you if you were picking a if you were picking an exacta, and you couldn't pick USC, I think Oregon State and Oregon would be on most of the ballots that people turned in because people might say, okay, well, I can believe in Washington and Oregon, or I believe in Oregon State and Washington, or I believe in Oregon and Oregon State, or Utah and Oregon State. Like, I think you'd get a lot of action on Oregon and Oregon State, uh, you know, to get to the Pac-12 championship game. Stephen, is it is it a wild thought to think that Oregon and Oregon State, one of those teams is going to Vegas? Oh, definitely not wild. It's definitely not a wild thought. Uh, you know, you look at the conference, I think there's five legitimate teams you can say right now has a chance. And then if you want to add UCLA in there as well, it's kind of up in the air what they're doing. Uh, you know, Ethan Garber is going to be the starting quarterback, but is it Dante Moore's team? I, I'm not ready to quite put them yet in the conversation. But, yeah, Oregon, Oregon State, they're two of the five teams I think you can really consider to get into the conference championship game. 
Um, it, it may very well come down, down to that last night, Civil War, in, in Eugene, Austin Stadium. It'd be, what an environment that would be uh, potentially you know, the last meeting between these two teams for the foreseeable future for a chance to go to Vegas. I mean, what better way would that be? That would just, that would just be great. That would be great to end the, end the career uh, of the Pac-12. Yeah, Chip Kelly saying that Ethan Garbers will get the start uh, in week one. He says he will play Dante Moore, so it'll be a at what point does this become Dante Moore's team equation, or if he tries to play two quarterbacks, look out. We'll see how that goes. Meanwhile, Kyle Whittingham at Utah, uh, staying true to form, saying that uh, he is not going to tip his hand on who starts at the home opener at Florida on Thursday Stephen, I think uh, I'm leaning towards seeing uh, Bryson Barnes there because we haven't heard a bunch about Cam Rising, but I, I wouldn't be surprised by anything that Utah throws uh, at Florida on Thursday night because that's just kind of what Kyle Winningham does. The, the thing that I keep going back to, though, is you know Bill Riley said it, Winningham said it at Pac-12 Media Day, like Utah is more concerned about the Pac-12, and they're more concerned about a Pac-12 championship than I think this Florida game. So. I, I okay. I, I'm with you. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Cam Rising plays and starts, but I don't think it's going to be him. I think it's going to be Bryson Barnes or you know going to be the starting quarterback in that game because I would think they want to. They don't want to push Rising back right away, and they're more looking forward to the actual Pac-12 conference season. So, and I think if you know, I think if Rising doesn't play in this game, it's going to be tough for Utah. Now I know Florida's not very good, but. You know, I would probably I would lean Utah to win, but I'd probably take Florida. You know, cover yeah. the spread there. Utah's not losing that game at home. I, I just, I just, they're I, not losing that game. The they Cam, may not cover that. They're not losing that game. The Cam Rising, you know, he gets he gets undercredited because of just his lack of you know natural skills. I think, but just leadership wise, like he is, he's that guy. Like he is, he's the face of the Utah program, the rise of it. You know, so I, I think it's a bigger loss than maybe even what you're saying, John. Like I think this could be a really close game if he doesn't play. I think that it, I think Utah wins the game regardless, but I think if he plays, I I'm even more I'm even a little more sketched for Utah if he plays because he just hasn't been in there. He hasn't knocked the rust off, so to speak. And I would hate to see them. And Kyle Whittingham said that on media day. He would not put him in that position unless he was a hundred percent. But we'll see. I feel like there's not a lot of enthusiasm for Oregon's home game against Portland State. That people are kind of looking at it as kind of like a. You know they're looking past Portland State a little bit, and are, do you think Duck fans are excited to see Week One? Like I don't see a lot of buzz about this game. No, I think it's I think they're more excited about Week Two, uh, the Texas Tech game, and then I think they're also just more excited the fact that they're in the Big Ten now. Like we go, we don't want to talk about realignment, but I think that was a big win for a lot of the Duck fans that they're going to be included in the Big Ten and they're going to win off the field as well. So now they're going to be continuing to compete for championships on the field for football. So I, I, I'm with you. I don't hear a lot of buzz for week one. I think it's more for week two against that Texas Tech team. But really, I think it's for 2024 when they join the Big Ten. I think more Duck fans are excited about that than they are actual games this season. Anna was so excited <laughs> earlier. She's been waiting right now. She's like a pug coming down the hallway. She's so excited right now to tell us about her beef that she's having. Was I with, heavy breathing? You into were the heavy night? breathing a little bit. And I was just like, Could wow. you hear me, Stephen? I need um, someone besides John to verify this. I could not hear you. I will Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ask Judah, but I could not hear you. I just I, kept I looking going, What is that sound? <laughs> Anna getting ready to give her you rant. You are never allowed to describe me as a pug ever again. No offense to any pugs yeah. or pug owners. You're excited. 
They're You're adorable dogs. All right. but I'm breathing just fine. All right, give us. Why are you so fired up? What is going on in the world right now that has Anna all kinds of fired up? Oh gosh, no. This was really just more of a casual comment because I just don't understand why. And I'm. I guess I'm going to check the date here. Monday, August twenty eighth. Um, I know that Costco starts to bring out their Halloween stuff like in June. But, like, everybody has jumped on this bandwagon of advancing to the next season before the next season is here. I get the irony that we're sitting here talking about fall football. I'm kind of okay with that. It's a sports show. Yeah, so. Football's this week. <laughs> I know. Like, that's not right. like we're talking about something months from now. Yeah, so that's, like, imminent. But it's when, you know, like, I am i wouldn't, I haven't been to Costco in a while, so I wouldn't be surprised if they already have their Christmas stuff out already. Right. And so there's part of this, like, advancing to the next season already that drives me a little bit crazy because i'm like i don't don't push your pumpkin spice latte and your halloween costumes on me yet i'm just not ready for it yeah is it because I'm you still, i'm still enjoying summer yeah is it because you don't want to let go of summer you like summer well it's your favorite season it's not just the summer it's like every season like i can't even get through fall yet and you're halfway through fall and you're already you know, talking about Christmas decorations or you're just finishing Christmas and we've moved on to St. Patrick's Day. I'm like, I can't, I can't keep up. And in, in the end, it just feels like this lack of contentment for the season yeah. we are in. So people aren't happy where they're at. They're always thinking about the next season. Yeah. So I September know. 23rd is actually the uh, the uh, the autumn equinox. Right. The autumnal equinox is October, September 23rd. Okay. So when is it appropriate for anybody to start to say fall is coming? So you don't think August something or other is is the Just right time? No time in August. Like give me until September, okay? Before you start like you need to see a leaf fall. Throwing out the pumpkin patch, you know, suggestions it's, and stuff. It's got to be at least Labor Day because that's when a lot of schools start. Is right after Labor Day, so it's like back to school, fall. Like I get that because yeah. I'm with Anna. August, get out. That's still summertime. I know. Like I and I don't know quite when this became a thing. I don't remember it always advancing. I don't think it did. So quickly. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a retail thing. I don't know. I don't know. But do you uh, think this in general there there tends to be I think a a relative dissatisfaction with people with the 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 present. The present. Yes. Homeostasis is not a thing. Like people are always going, I can't wait for tomorrow. I can't wait for tomorrow. And talking about yesterday, but they're they're very they're not present. Well, yeah, and like you and I have talked about it with the kids, because you know that's something that we want them to learn is the art of being present and not always being focused on what's coming. Or I think as adults, often sometimes we can get stuck in the past. Like you know, you you we all have that friend that always just wants to talk about memories or bring up things that happened in the past, and that's fine. But I think a lot of us struggle with just being in the moment, being in the present and being satisfied and content with that. And it's I, I know I personally struggle with it because I'm always like looking ahead at the calendar and, you know, trying to like crisis avert some kind of scheduling thing for our family or whatever. But I don't know. It's it's an art that I, I'm not saying that I, I'm probably as much of a hypocrite as somebody else, you know. So no, I, I'm not but I, I'm better I, than anybody. I actually think that retailers lead the way on this, right? They lead the league in this kind of look forward thing, and they pro there probably is a reason. Like it's never too soon to get. 
going selling your uh, your Valentine's Day cards or whatever they do yeah. early. They lead the way on it. But I, I think the public tends to follow like sh- we're sheep. Yeah. And we tend to go, okay, and we're supposed to move on. Now we're it's Halloween. It's it's yeah. pumpkin spice time and yeah. and then it's Valentine's and then it's St. Patrick's Day or Easter and then you know and we're, we're like two months ahead and always. I, I have nothing against a pumpkin spice latte. I do. Like <laughs> I, and problem. I have nothing against I love all the holidays especially now that you know we have the kids you enjoy it even more through them but I just don't need to enjoy it two months before I also I don't th- need, even uh, need to start preparing that early for it. But let's be real. You are also going through a thing with the kids. What? They're seven and nine. Yeah. And we've been through this with the 20-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And you know that the, these days are precious. Yeah. And you know that very in very short order, they're going to make friendships that will supersede us as parents. I know. And they're going to be like... You know, can you drop me off at the skate rink, but don't come in? (laughs) You know, that's, you know, that's coming. You know, can I go to the mall? Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's go to the mall. But no, I don't want to go with you. I want to go with my friends. That's coming. Okay. And I think there's, is there part of you that's clinging a little bit? Oh, oh, totally. To summer because you know that you only have so many summers until they don't want, they want us to like drop them off and keep our head down as we drive away. It's why we, you know, took like a, last minute last ditch trip to the coast this weekend because we were like okay let's just do it you know let's go make the best of these last few hours of summer with the kids and our family time before we uh i guess lose them to education (laughs) that sounds horrible before they have to go off and learn something (laughs) damn it i don't mean to say it like that well first day of school coming up tomorrow should be exciting yeah it's gonna be really it's gonna be exciting one all right coming back we will talk about sports i promise you got the bald-faced truth statewide all right i want to bring up a subject that i can only bring up with anna being part of the conversation because i would be a hypocrite for bringing it up otherwise so uh, I, I want to ask you guys something. I was I was perusing a couple of the national websites, uh, and I always do this right before the show, sometimes during the show, as I'm looking to see, uh, is there any news breaking? Um, you know, is anything big happening? Is, you know, has Stanford and Cal left and I missed it, you know? Um, and I, I see this story that ESPN has up as one of the top stories of the day, and it has to do with Matthew Stafford the Los Angeles, Los Angeles Rams quarterback. And it quotes in the headline that Stafford is saying that Matthew Stafford is struggling to gel with the young Rams players. And then I read the story because I'm a little confused by the headline. And this is according to his wife, Kelly. So they've create, ESPN has created a story that does not have a byline. It's a staff byline just says ESPN. And it says the Los Angeles Rams roster has experienced massive turnover in the two years since the team won the Super Bowl. And the influx of youth has quarterback Matthew Stafford finding it hard to connect with his teammates, according to his wife, Kelly. And I was like, oh, did she give an interview to ESPN? She did not, it turns out. She has a podcast. It's called The Morning After with Kelly Stafford. I listened to some of it during the break. It's on a lot of things like kids, ice cream, IVF. Um, it has very little to do with football, but she, you know, she's doing a podcast and it's got some popularity to it, but somebody at ESPN is, um, interested in content and, uh, is grabbing, uh, you know, some of these audio clips 
of her talking about, you know, he's having a hard time gelling with younger players. And so I went to the actual transcript of what she was saying, and she was saying um, that in the old days, players would come out of practice, they'd take a shower, people would be playing cards and interacting. What is this, like 1930? <laughs> Smoking cigars? Um, you see here. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, who knows what they're doing, but they're doing something together, playing ping pong. They have a tournament going on, or at least they'd be talking. But now they get out of practice. They go straight to their phones. Nobody looks up from their phones. And Matthew's like, I don't know. Am I the dad? Do I take their phones? What do I do here? He's 35, okay? (laughs) All right, he's in his 15th NFL season, third with the Rams. But Kelly Stafford says that her husband is struggling to have his new teammates see him as an equal. They say sir to him, and then he's like, no, 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 I'm your teammate. I'm not a sir. (laughs) So here's my question. A, is this a story that his wife on her podcast is kind of talking flippantly about this? Is ESPN out of bounds making this a quote-unquote story? Like, this is hard-hitting news. Secondarily, is this interesting at all? Um, I think it's interesting, and I think that we've all seen what constitutes a story uh, stretched in different ways in the last few years. I just don't know. because It got you looking at I it? I looked at it, and then I opened so it, and it I was worked. like, oh, this is just his wife saying that, you know, he's coming home going, hey, uh, you know, my teammates are younger than me. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and I, and I get it could be an interesting podcast, but not a it, it's right up there on ESPN's website with mm-hmm. like with like news. Yeah. It's like it's right beside the fact that Jim Harbaugh is slamming the status quo and wants players to be paid. Uh-huh. It's right beside the story that says Bronny James is doing well. <laughs> you know, he's recovering. Well, OK, it's right beside the story that that has the Cardinals to keep Kyler Murray on uh, on the pup list, like physically unable to perform, like they're keeping him around. Like, here are all the news stories. And oh, by the way, Stafford is struggling to gel with young Rams. Like, because I took it as, is there a riff in the locker room? Right. I think that's kind of a dangerous road for her as a wife to go down because that will unnecessarily create some friction potentially in the locker room that I don't know that is going to be helpful to that team or her husband. I pulled some of the, like I went to the, the homepage of the podcast. Yeah. Just to kind of sample what she talks sure. about. And you know, she's talking about kids and everything. Yeah. It's fine. Like I'm sure yeah. there's like I'm sure diehard Rams fans and people who are interested in Matthew Stafford yeah. are eating it up. Sure. In the same way that like you know when Tom Brady, I remember when Tom Brady was having like some concussion questions, yeah. and Giselle was out talking about it at the time. Yeah. Every time she talked about it, it made news, and I had to wonder. I was like, at what point is Tom Brady telling her, "Hey, this isn't good for us for you to be talking about this." Yeah. Like I don't necessarily think this hurts Matthew Stafford. But I also am, like, sitting back going, there wasn't a reporter at ESPN wanting to put their name on that story. Mm-hmm. Like, ESPN staff tells me that ESPN has somebody who's working on their staff, whose job it is to comb through a bunch of podcasts, to create content, to slap up on the website, to get page views. And in the end, it's not really a story. Like, there isn't really a rift in that locker room. It's just kind of a cute little 30-second, oh, you know, he's older than the other players. Yeah. And this is a, uh, you know, this is an example of why a 35-year-old quarterback is going to, like, his 22, 23-year-old teammates and going, hey, you guys are all on your phones. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yes, sir, we'll get off him right away. Like, you know, it's, to me, it's not a news story. Like, that's not news. 
Well, for what it's worth, I mean, I wouldn't say that all five of my five at five items are always great, hard-hitting news stories. In fact, I know that they're not. I saw that story, and it didn't make my cut. Didn't. Why? Because it was just a little too tangential. Like, I saw that... It wasn't an interview with Matthew Stafford. Correct. It was an interview with his wife. It wasn't, so it, yeah. It was just like too many spaces removed for me to go, okay, this is something that we need to talk about. So Kelly Stafford saying that her husband is struggling to gel with younger players does not rise to newsworthy for our 5 at 5, but ESPN <laughs> made it one of the top 10 stories of the day. Why? Because it's a salacious headline that people are going to click on. It's mm-hmm. clickbait. Yeah. It's 100% clickbait. And the way that they even put the headline, it says Kelly Stafford, colon, Matthew Stafford struggles to gel with young Rams. Yeah. You know, if I'm yeah. one of the young Rams players, I'm like, what did I do? Right. And then I read the story and I go, oh, it's really her just saying there's a generation gap. Uh-huh. See, to me, I don't know. Steven, how do you read it? Uh, I'm going to vote not a story and not interesting. I just, you know, I'm with you. Like, I, I got caught by the headline. I clicked on it as well, and I was thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm going to have to go cut this audio of uh, Kelly Stafford. And then I'm like, no, like, this this doesn't have to do with anything. <laughs> like, what she's saying, it has nothing to do with anything. So I'm with Anna out of my five at five as well if I was doing it. it just It's one of those things where they're just trying to get you to click, and I think they're trying to get you uh, to get excited, I guess, for the NFL. I don't know. It, it seemed like a really weird story to put out there when there's uh, other actual news going on. I think they're combing audio podcast now like they didn't before yeah and they're looking especially they probably have a list of like 50 podcasts and they go to some young person and staff member intern yeah and they say listen to all these they probably don't even do that because they're probably just feeding podcasts into oh i don't know chat gpt or like something ai that spits out the transcript really fast so that somebody can review that and see if there's anything good in there, see if there's any nuggets in there to pull out. Yeah, because the first thing I noticed is <clears throat> that Stephen did not pull the audio. Yeah, yeah. And the, our in, our staff of interns did not pull the audio. Yeah. And so I thought, gosh, it's weird that we don't have this salacious audio. And then I, I said, let me see the transcript of it. And I found the transcript, and the transcript's not that bad. We don't yeah. use it's, AI. We don't use AI, AI that's why. We have yeah. to go through manually and figure <laughs> it all out. Manually doing it. We're actually looking for things that are relevant and interesting. And I find it weird because it's amid like all these transactions and personnel moves that yeah. this is a story that ESPN is pushing to us like this is really important that the 35-year-old quarterback is saying that when he's in the locker room, the players are all on their phones. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get to know guys when you know their heads are down and they're on the phone. Um, and uh, I... I actually don't think this is a story at all. It's interesting. It's worth like 15 seconds of conversation. But I think the bigger point is that ESPN, and we all know this, and every other media outlet is trying to shovel clickbait down our throats. And, hey, they get paid when you click. All right, the 5 at 5 is coming up. We promise it will be Matthew Stafford free. Tomorrow on the program, Kirk Schultz, Washington State University president, will join us. Also tomorrow, Bruce Barnum. Portland State head football coach. He's got a uh, tall task on Saturday. He'll be at Autzen Stadium taking on the Oregon Ducks. We'll ask Bruce Barnum what his approach to that game will be. We'll break down all of the games this week, and uh, particularly the Pac-12 games. On Thursday, I will be live from Rice-Eccles Stadium in Salt Lake City. 
where I will uh, join this show and talk about the scene in Salt Lake. I will then head to the Bay Area where I will see Oregon State and San Jose State on Sunday. And uh, I'll be tuned in to Oregon and Portland State. Uh, following week in week two, I will be at Lubbock, Texas for Oregon, Texas Tech. By the way, um, a kind of an interesting exchange with Steve Sarkeesian asked about Brett Yormark's comments about Texas Tech. For people who don't know, Yormark basically uh, called a po- you, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this one. So your mark basically telling the Texas Tech coach Joe McGuire to take care of business against Texas. In addition, candidly, we were able to get Texas and Oklahoma out a year early. That was a big deal for us and I think all of you. Okay. And coach, I'm not going to put any pressure on you, but I'm going to be in Austin for Thanksgiving. Okay. And you better take care of business like you did right here in Lubbock last year. Brett, Candidly, Brett, we were able to Brett get to- your mark uh, talking about uh, uh, the Texas Tech win over Texas. I like how he kind of spun, hey, we were able to get them out a little early, changing the narrative on the idea that you are being abandoned by Texas and Oklahoma to, hey, we got him out early. Steve Sarkeesian, the Texas coach, of course, heard those remarks. Well... You're trying to get me in trouble, Roger. But um, I, 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 jokingly aside, but but not. <laughs> you know, I got a letter from the commissioner about sportsmanship the day before that speech, and so I'm trying to figure out, you know, about what are we promoting to our student athletes, and then to go say those types of things. So I'm I'm not guessing he's going to have his Thanksgiving dinner with us the night before that game. Um, but the reality of it is, you know, that's, a lot's been made about that. A lot's been made about a T-shirt being made. Let's not make this more than it is. Man, this is about us. We're focused on what we get to do and why we get to do it. We're proud to be part of the University of Texas. Okay, We're proud to represent the burnt orange and white. We're proud to represent 550,000 living alumni. We're proud to represent four national championship teams. We're proud to get to go do that. And we know who's behind us. And that's okay. Now let's go play. I'll take Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I think Texas Tech's going to be all right, but uh, we'll get to see Texas Tech in week two. For Oregon fans, yeah, you want Texas Tech looking forward to Thanksgiving. Look ahead. Look ahead. All season, look ahead. All right, we got the five at five. Anna's here to do it. The five at five. 550,000 living alumni. I've never quite heard it like that. I want to uh, I want to fact check that. One, I'm not saying he's wrong. Two. I just... <laughs> Three. Living yeah. alumni. All right, that's yeah. that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. Um, okay, well, he's accomplished something. Noel Lyles, United States track and field star, is suddenly on everybody's radar now. Uh, we might not have noticed him and his accomplishments. Um, he had a successful weekend at the World Championships in Budapest. He won three gold medals. Congratulations world, to him. He's a world champion. He's the world's number one ranked 200-meter runner. He's now top five in the 100-meter. But it's what he said that has everyone talking. You know, the thing that hurts me the most is that I have to watch the NBA Finals, and they have world champion on their head. World champion of what? The United States? 
don't get me wrong. I, I love the U.S. at times. <laughs> but that ain't the world. That is not the world. We are the world. We have almost every country out here fighting, thriving, putting on their flag to show that they are represented. There ain't no flags in the NBA. <laughs> NBA. Did they respond? Uh, yeah, yeah. This was like a great unifying comment because he's got Kevin Durant responding. Durant wrote, somebody help this brother. Uh, he's got Aaron Gordon responding, saying, whatever, <laughs> I'm smoking buddy in the 200 meter. Uh, Damian Lillard chimed in, like, everyone. What did, what did Lillard say? Uh, Are you talking about Portland? He wrote, Blazers? No, 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 no. Oh. He, he's brief. <laughs> TF. I, 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 you got to figure yeah. that one out if you don't Like already. WTF. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, yeah, TF. Yeah. There you go. And if you don't know what that means, you're going to have to Google it. All right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I mean, so this guy, Noah Lyles, is a six-time world champion himself, but I guess you can question the wisdom of taking on I, I, the entire NBA. I know what he's saying, and I think buried in like the foolishness of his comments is a truth that that you know what he's saying is track and fields world championships are true world championships. This is you know the best in the world on the track, best you know, but. He shouldn't have called out the NBA to do this because there isn't better basketball on the planet than the basketball that's being played by the NBA champion. And by the way, in a league that is largely international. So it's I it loses some luster. Um, I think it would be really interesting, you know, as uh, you know, we have seen some players internationally basically say like Dylan Brooks is saying, look out for Canada, you know, <laughs> when they play. Uh, and the Olympic tournaments have been interesting at different times, but we have dominated. And I do think that the NBA world champion is, is the best basketball team on the planet. So it falls apart for me. But I get what he was trying to say. He was trying to elevate track and field and say, hey, this is a, he should have just said it's a true world championship. Look at all the flags inside the in, in the stadium. We're really taking on the best of the best across the world. And by the way, not all sports can say that. He would have been far more accurate. In saying that, but he got some attention. I mean, if his aim was to get everybody to know who he was, now we we know who Noel Lyles is. I took it as he was saying, like the actual NBA, since it's only in America and Toronto as well. One can one Canadian team, like you can't say you're the world champion when all, all your games are only in America. Mm. Right. I see. Like that's the way I took it. Which I mean, some like it's just semantics at that point. Like, yeah, the NBA is the best league in the world, but like <laughs> technically, you can't be the world champion if you don't play other teams throughout the world. I see. Right? Like the World Series as well. Like Major League yeah. Baseball. But I kind of like like they had the World Baseball Classic. I think it added some fuel to it. You know, and we saw earlier this year these teams played, and it was exciting to see the, the team from the, you know, the America taking on, you know, uh, Shohei Otani and, you know, seeing, like, are we the best team in the world? <laughs> what? Did you just call it the America? I don't know. <laughs> USA. And I love too how he said, "I love my country most of the time." You know, yeah. like you're, he just opened himself for all sorts of problems. All, all kinds. Of he problems. needed a good advisor to be yeah. like, "Okay, take that out of the speech. Okay, change this part. Yeah. Okay, tweak that." No, that you was know. definitely a off the cuff. Yeah, comment. That he yeah. Made. Well, he got some. Uh, he got some notoriety. Not everybody can get multiple NBA players to tweet at you. There you, you go. Know? Good. Well done, yeah, Noah Lyles. Good job. There you go. 
Okay, moving on. Uh, number, do we count two. up or down? Two. two. Okay. Um, wow. I know, I know. So speaking of world stages, uh, Nicholas Batum uh, is embarrassed over France's loss and elimination in the first round of the FIBA World Cup. So France had gone into the tournament as a favorite, managed to lose 95-65 to to Canada, and then lost 88-86 to to Latvia on Sunday as the team blew a 13-point second half. Dylan Brooks said, look out for Canada. He did. (laughs) He did. So, uh, Batum, and I'm really only bringing this up because we have a connection to Batum. I don't know that it would be that interesting otherwise, but he's saying that he feels ashamed by the defeat and uh, admitted that he was scared to go home and face fans with France being (laughs) out after just two games. Yeah, because he's going to get a lot of ridicule. Nicholas Batum is Batum. number two. You played pool with him. I played Nicholas pool with him. Uh, was he a good pool player? Uh, no, he wasn't oh, very good. Okay. But we shot pool, and we had conversation. We talked about the Blazers, why he was still with the Blazers, and it was uh, it was an interesting time. You know what's interesting about that is he brought his mom to the pool hall. Oh, I didn't yeah. His mom was with him, and That's she so just cute. sat. She sat off to the side, and he and I played pool, Yeah. and we talked about it, and um, I was the better pool player. Yeah. I Did think, you find him pleasant? Uh, I think he's a really nice person. Uh-huh. I think he's a nice person. I think, I think too that um, he, you know, he came to Portland so young. I know he was such a young person, and I just I remember doing an interview with him on radio one of the shortly after he arrived, and um, I I admire that he tried, but I hardly could understand his answers. Yeah. His accent was so heavy. Yeah. And he got better and better with his interviews, well, but your I, French just need to be better. Uh, yeah, I just I think that people liked Nicholas Batum, yeah. and I think he was the kind of player when you watched him play that he didn't you didn't always notice everything that he did, mm-hmm. and then you'd look at the box score and you'd see he, you know he had eight rebounds, he had seven assists, and yeah. he had sixteen points, and you're like he had a pretty good game, quiet contributor. Steven, yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, good player, you know, and I think right now he's really adapted his game to be, you know, the three and D guy that shoots threes and plays defense. And, you know, you got to give him credit for that because, you know, when he was in Portland, when he was, you know, really younger, he tried to be a ball handler. He tried to do a little bit more than he actually could. And I always kind of adapt his game. So I'm with you. Like back when he was with Portland, did a lot of things that helped the team out. And now that he's gotten older, he's really adjusted that role to the Clippers. Yeah. And also in pool, he, he, uh, he, he wasn't very good. <laughs> Number three story. Can't do it all, man. Can't do it all. Um, okay, so Nick Bosa with the 49ers. I only know about this because we've been watching quarterback. I, I only know about him because of that show, I think. Okay. But it turns out he has yet to sign an extension as the regular season draws closer. He is the defensive player of the year, and he's currently holding out, and he's been away from the team during training camp. But Jeremy Fowler with ESPN is under the impression that we'll all be coming to an end soon. He's using the words like optimism and that he expects, uh, you know, somewhere in the 30 million per year number. All right. So here's an interesting deadline. The, the NFL teams have a deadline of tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific time to trim their rosters to 53. There's some question that that would provide a deadline 
for the Niners to be like, hey, you need to, you know, you need to. So there's all these little false deadlines that happen on mm-hmm. the way to getting a deal done. But clearly, um, you know, the 49ers expect to pay for Nick Bosa. Like, they expect that they need him. He is one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. Might be the best defensive uh, lineman in the NFL. And, you know, the Niners are on record. They expect him to sign by week one. And I I would not be surprised if we get resolution on this, like, tomorrow as the rosters are trimmed. Because the Niners need to know, do we need to keep an extra defensive lineman in the event that he is going to be a holdout? But um, Ian Rappaport saying they're not close to a deal. But it's funny how those things work. They, they can get close to a deal. <laughs> Pretty quickly. Number four. Um, On the flip side of things, poor Michael Dunn, offensive lineman with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, It's his birthday today. Hey, happy birthday. That's nice. So the Browns posted a graphic on social media wishing him a happy birthday. Oh, that's nice. Like the team does for all of its players. But then two hours later, he got cut. Happy birthday, buddy. The birthday post is still sitting on X, formerly known as Twitter. So they've got, like, the happy birthday thing just sitting out there. Um, Happy birthday. You no longer have a job with us. Happy birthday. It just shows you they preset all those. You know, somebody's job is to go in there and preset all the birthday posts. And uh, Michael Dunn got one. (laughs) And in the end... uh, he also got cut. Truly unfortunate. That's really sad. But it's a reality. And, you know, look, it's part of the reality of the NFL. It's that season in the NFL right now. And there are a lot of players, former players at Oregon and Oregon State, that are fighting for jobs here in the next less than 24 hours, in, you know, including guys like Jack Coletto with the Niners, Jaden Grant with the Raiders, and a whole bunch of others. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a really weird time, and you just hope that the guys who get cut can hook back up with other teams and find a better fit or maybe make a practice squad or in some cases this is it this is the end of the road for it so it is kind of a weird time in the nfl and you know we all have seen the show hard knocks and we've watched players get cut but i think the harsh reality of it is um even more sobering in their world there's no camera there's no glamour to it and for some players it's just uh, it's a uh, hey this is a business and we don't have room for you conversation Number five. Okay. The last one. Um, most of us by now have seen El Segundo win the Little League World Series championship. Challenged him, and this game is over. Lewis Lappy does it again. California, your Little League World Series champs on a walk-off home run. Okay, and just another example of Japan and its, um, you know, extreme hospitality and manners. The Japanese Little League team reached through the fence to congratulate El Segundo after their win. And it reminds me of the story that we saw, I think it was from the World Baseball thing, where it was like the Japanese fans went through the stands after the game, and they were picking up everybody else's garbage. Yeah. So it's just cool sportsmanship. Um, little tidbit, El Segundo, I guess, has been hosting Japan for a Little League tournament for years, um, their sister cities. So pretty cool. This is a normal thing in Japan. They did it at the World Cup. 
They did it at the World Baseball Classic. Um, they did it in. Uh, they did it. They do it in other stadiums. They do it in their home stadiums. They stay behind. They clean up the stands, and the rest of us go. Why aren't we doing that? We can't even take our cart back to the cart corral at the grocery store. You know, a lot of people. You're in a movie theater. You're in a stadium. What do you do? You just throw it on the floor. You let somebody else get it. Uh, Japanese fans uh, showing some class. Why? Why are they so much classier than us? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Turns out Taipei, Taiwan, bowed to Texas as a team. They bowed? After beating them. How about that? Beat them and then bowed to them. Like that. You know? I don't know. I should do that next time I play a board game or something with the kids. Bow to them. (laughs) Beat them and bow. It's It's just a cultural thing, man. I don't know. That's good five at five. I like that you finished with the Little League World Series. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Uh, and by the way, they had a they had some kind of viewing party. Yeah. One, one of your friends <laughs> lives in that community. Yes. What, what is it, El Segundo? It's El Segundo. Give us an idea. What is El Segundo? <clears throat> um, oh, well, it's a little beach community. She calls it like the Mayberry of Southern California. I don't know about that. But she has um, teenage sons who actually uh, go to school with some of these boys that are on the team. So the whole town had a viewing party and went crazy like they were on their home field oh they were on the little league diamond they were on the little league diamond watching the game as as the team won and so they they went crazy and it was a great community event she was taking video very excited i I have to be honest i and i alluded to this earlier in the show but i saw that i saw the lewis lappy story we talked about lewis lappy on friday's show I felt really good about the fact that I got a couple of emails from listeners who said, hey, I wouldn't have been tuned into it, but you and Anna were talking about the Tennessee team that had um, uh, showed some bad sportsmanship, I thought, mm-hmm. and and appealed. Like, Lappy hits a home run to beat them and eliminate them. Same thing, same circumstance. It's a go-ahead home run. It gives his team a 5-3 lead in the sixth inning. And Tennessee, as he's rounding the bases, you know, they, they try to appeal home plate to say he missed home plate. The umpire calls him out, and later it turns out the umpire was saying, I didn't see it, but I wanted to call him out. I knew on replay that we could overturn it. So the umpire calls him out. Um, Of course, uh, the El Segundo team says, go to the replay. They go to the replay. They, in fact, see that his foot hits home plate. So they say, okay, he was safe. It's a home run. Then Tennessee gets back on the mound and appeals second base. (laughs) It was such a bad sportsmanship moment, and... But I had some people who said, no, you got to touch them all. That's part of the game. It's the letter of the law. Nonsense. Kid hit a home run. He he knocks Tennessee out. But I got to be honest with you, as Lappy's rounding the bases there against Curacao, um, I'm looking like, is he touching second? Is he touching third? Oh, like, yeah. You know damn well everybody else was thinking he the same thing. He made a point of stomping on home plate, yeah. you know. Steven, do you think it's poor sportsmanship in a Little League game to appeal that a runner has missed a base? Um, are you talking one base or two bases? Because yeah. one I don't think is wrong at all. Uh, I mean, I remember we played Little League. I, I know yeah. we appealed some things. I really don't even have a problem with two, I'll be honest. If they if it's a legitimate thought that he missed second base, I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a problem with it. Like, you're I just do. trying to win the game. I do. I think I think there. I draw a distinction, though. Because if, if you're going to appeal a runner left early on a mm-hmm. sacrifice fly, yeah. I think it's a whole different conversation than guy just crushed a home run against your best pitcher. Yeah. He's rounding the bases. We think he missed second base. Because to me, that second one is, uh, you know, let's try to get Al Capone on tax evasion. 
And the first one is that's a legitimate baseball play if somebody left early it gives them a competitive advantage mm-hmm. and i would you know you you would hope that they weren't cheating by leaving early so you're calling it and you're asking the umpire to check it yeah, yeah. so but the home run is guy just beat you yeah. he's rounding the bases <laughs> if you know if he if his yeah, shoelace cool. missed second base uh, you know i don't have a problem with it. i would not have appealed that do you have a problem in the nfl when guys drop the ball at the 2 yard line before they get in the different, end zone but different it's not, though because different, 100% that's how, professional sports but he, but he beat the defense. He was going to score a touchdown. It was going to be easy, and he dropped well, he it before it, to celebrate. And but he Lewis didn't Lappy cross. Just didn't touch the base. He didn't cross the goal line. You don't get a touchdown for it. But if hey, I have a whole, I have a whole other set of rules for Major League Baseball. If the guy misses a base in Major League Baseball, call him on it. He's a professional. But if you're calling an 11 year old or a 12 year old kid, and you're saying he was so excited that he stepped over second base on his home run trot, I'm like, the minute the ball goes over the fence, it's a home run for me. I don't care if he runs it backwards. I don't care if he, you know, if he doesn't, you know, he just got to run around the bases. It's a home run. Like, I do agree it, with you that it's a bad look that he did touch all the bases. Like if well, it, if it, they it, called him and he was actually out, I think that's a great play. But the fact that he was safe and he touched all the bases, I think that was the worst look. And they did it twice. Yeah. It like, did steal from the moment, you know. 100%. It wasn't steal. as bad as, let's say, oh, I don't know, kissing a soccer player unwantedly. I'll tell you this, and maybe I'm a little sore because of this, all right? It, there, there's a personal tie to something similar that happened to me in college okay Okay. that's why they hear no no it isn't it isn't it just kind of annoyed me because it's the same kind of bs Mm -hmm. right so uh we were playing in a game against a team that had a cyclone outfield fence okay okay and i hit a ball over the center field fence Mm -hmm. that landed beyond the fence but hit the parking structure okay and then bounced back into the field to play oh okay okay so it was over the fence, hit the parking structure, bounced back into the field to play. Yeah. But the uh, it was a home run. Yeah. Second base umpire is running out to the outfield. He's signaling home run. I'm going around the bases. Suddenly the other team's coming out of the dugout protesting, saying, no, it's a ground rule double. It bounced over the fence. And there was a big debate between the two umpires as the <laughs> second base umpire had to come running in to talk to the home plate umpire. I'm interrupting my home run trot. Okay. <laughs> I'm stuck between second and third oh. going, what are you guys doing? The ball went over the fence. They're having a discussion where the second base umpire is saying, hey, no, no, ball hit the parking garage and came back onto the field. Yeah. It's a home run. So then I get to continue my trot. But I thought it was such a Bush League move by the other team, mm-hmm. the home team who probably had done this numerous times, <laughs> right. to contend that the ball that was crushed off the parking garage was actually a ground rule double. Hmm. Lewis Lappy. Take your lappy around the bases. I don't care if he touches them all or not. He's 11 or 12 years old. I'm going to give the kid his moment. Okay? College pros, it's different. Mm -hmm. It's different. But, yeah, it is a bad look when you appeal home plate and they go, no, he got it. And then you go, let's appeal second base. Like, that, that's my problem is, like, it was close at home, right? Like, it was a legitimate concern. Like, maybe he didn't touch home plate. But then to go back and go to second base, like, all right, come on. Now you're just now you're trying too hard. Now you're just reaching. Yeah. You got beat. You got beat on the field. But I, I just love that, you know, look, it had a had a nice moment. I felt bad for the you know, there's still there's another team involved and you saw the emotions on the field. Yeah. Team from Curacao was crushed. Like and the pitcher made a mistake. That ball was supposed to be six inches outside. He grooved it right down the middle of the plate. And Lappy's, you know, like you know, he's like he might be 22 years old. We find that out someday, and this conversation could change. But he's look, he looks like a grown man at home plate. And he hits the ball over the left center field fence, just crushes it, and wins the game. And, you know, it's like, you know, cue the music from the natural. <laughs> this, this, was, this is what 
sports is supposed to do. In the Little League World Series, a year ago gave us the moment where the pitcher hit the guy and then he felt really bad. He walked over to first base and hugged him. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And the Little League World Series gives us this now. Why is it that the Little Leaguers are giving us better moments than the pros? It ha- It's happened two years in a row now. Because better. you have heads of Spanish soccer federations, again, unwantedly giving female players kisses on the lips. Did you hear, by the way, he's still refusing to step down, and now his mother is on a hunger strike. <laughs> I, I didn't his, hear the hunger, in his yeah. defense. What? His own mother is on a hunger strike in his defense. Did she see him grabbing his crotch? She's good with that, <laughs> but she's not good with him being suspended. She must be convinced he had no ill intentions, and yeah. maybe she buys his side of the story that it was consensual even the soccer player no. was like i wanted no part of any, kissing him on the lips any kiss that you have to give that involves you gripping the other person's both sides of their face <laughs> and holding it steady is not a not a wanted kiss okay he was he was gripping and holding steady all all that was needed in that scenario was a vice that was the only thing that was going to keep that soccer player more still than the grip he had. And every time I see it now, it makes me more and more uncomfortable. Yeah. And now more and more videos coming out of the guy and like him jumping around during the game, doing the crotch grabbing yeah, yeah. and the pointing and uh-huh. stuff. He was out of control all day. But he's got his mom on his side. She's hunger striking? She's hunger striking. What's your over-under on how long she can strike? <laughs> What's your over-under? I don't know. I haven't seen the picture. Is, is that going to be a thing now? Is Damian Lillard going to do a hunger strike until the Blazers <laughs> trade him? Like, could this be a thing, a new thing in sports? You know? How many days could you hunger strike? One. <laughs> I wouldn't last. I like my food. I had a colonoscopy. I made a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was feeling pretty good about myself. Bone broth. You know? How <laughs> many creep Next time I do a colonoscopy, I'm going to come up with a cause before. And I'm going to be like, I'm on hunger strike. And they're going to be like, no, you're not. You just have a colonoscopy coming. Oh my Steven, goodness. how many days could you hunger strike? Yeah, I'm with Anna. It's like one day. Like tw- yeah. over under is 20, 24 hours. I'd probably take the under, but yeah, it's, it's close. It depends what foods are around me. His mother is on a hunger strike. Like, what would have to be the thing that you're like, all right, I care so much about this, I'm going on a hunger strike. Nothing. There's nothing I care about enough to go on a hunger strike. <laughs> Man. Nothing. Well, hopefully the kids there are you have it. There you have it. <laughs> There's spoken like a true mom. Leave it here. 49ers sent Trey Lance to the Dallas Cowboys for a fourth-round draft pick. Um, I was talking about this last week about how, you know, good organizations and bad organizations, good colleges, good athletic departments, bad athletic departments, uh, all make mistakes. The difference between the good and the bad, or maybe I should say the difference between the successful and those who struggle or get in their own way, is often the ability to course correct after a mistake. I'll be really interested to see what happens with Trey Lance with the Dallas Cowboys. But I can tell you this, the San Francisco 49ers and their locker room will not be distracted or asked about Trey Lance or uh, it will not be a lingering conversation. They gave up uh, way too much to get him in the first round a couple of years ago and instead now are starting the player that Brock Purdy, who was picked with the very last pick of the draft, And uh, I thought it was really interesting that they decided to cut bait at this point, so to speak, and take the fourth-round draft pick. Now, um, it's being celebrated, or I guess uh, anti-celebrated, as the worst 
draft pick in NFL history or the biggest draft day bust in NFL history. And I always find those conversations to be unfair to the players. Not Trey Lance's fault that the Niners saw value in him, went up and got him. Uh, not not Ryan Leaf's fault that the uh, San Diego Chargers went up and, and picked him. I always find those conversations to be somewhat unfair. Gray Godin goes to the Blazers, ends up being a bust. So does Sam Bowie, but you look at Bowie's career stats and you go, you know what, for a guy we would classify as, air quotes, a bust, he still played in some NBA games and made some money. Um, where do you stand on that? Because I can remember a few years ago that we had Sam Bowie on this show, and it was right around the time that Greg Oden was struggling. And I tracked Bowie down, and he very reluctantly gave an interview on this show where he spoke at length about Greg Oden and spoke at length about his own struggles and you know talked essentially about well how difficult it was for him to get through that time and have everybody looking at him like he was a bust. And I thought it humanized him in a way that um, was special and different. And I loved having him on the show. But here was Sam Bowie uh, back in uh, like 2017 or so. Uh, I can't believe we drafted this bus and uh, Michael Jordan was available. But I can honestly say that during my stay in Portland, uh, I received none of that, and that's uh, that's what it's all about. I just, uh, uh, if there's any wishing going on, not for myself, not for self-acclaim, but I wish I would have stayed healthy and we would have won a championship to justify me being selected as a second pick. But as you well know, you cannot foresee um, the injuries that I had uh, in the future. And people will say, um we could have had Michael Jordan, but at that time, they already had two all-star two guards in Clyde Drexler and Jim Paxson. And uh, so anyways, uh, I, I I keep reiterating this, and I, I sound uh, like I'm repeating myself, but I, I just want to continuously thank uh, all the loved ones out there because I've received nothing but support, even though I wasn't on the floor. There it is. Sam Bowie talking on this show. I left that interview, it was about a 20-minute interview, with so much respect for Bowie and so much of an understanding for the players who are, you know, obviously they're paid. Obviously they come in with high expectations and hopes. And sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes Ryan Leaf happens. Sometimes Greg Oden happens. Sometimes Trey Lance happens. But I remember specifically after asking Bowie about Greg Oden. No, but I followed Greg from the sidelines, never had the uh, pleasure to meet him, but I can only imagine what his mindset must be because obviously I followed Bill Walton and he had all the foot injuries. And then Greg's drafted as the first pick, and they say, here we go again, uh, another Sam Bowie. And a lot of times the general public's perception, they see athletes making tens of millions of dollars, and they say, well, Greg Odom's fine. He's uh, he's made millions of dollars. He got guaranteed money, but there is a part that uh, that we all want to be worthy of what we're being compensated. So when you talk about Greg, um, I feel for the kid. There it is. Greg Odin did not pan out. Ryan Leaf did not pan out. Trey Lance still has a chance with the Dallas Cowboys. Stephen, how interested are you in following this story? And you know if. The Dallas Cowboys, um, you know, end up playing Trey Lance someday. They got him for a fourth-round draft pick. And, oh, by the way, what will the Niners do with the fourth-round draft pick? Like, there's a lot of 
unspoken stuff here, but I think it was the right move for the Niners to move him and remove the distraction and let him try somewhere else. And I think it was a, a potential steal for the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that, you know, by all reports, it seems as if the Cowboys went out and got him. Like, it wasn't as if the 49ers just offered him to the Cowboys for a fourth-round pick. It was the Cowboys actively saying, hey, we'll give you a fourth-round pick so we can take Trey Lance. Like, they see something in him, and whether it is, you know, in a couple of years or, you know, he just shows out in preseason or some regular season games and they trade him and get just more value on it, I am intrigued by it because, you know, there was a reason he, why he was the third pick in the draft. And we all think Kyle Shanahan very highly of him and, you know, a very, uh, very good offensive coach. They saw something in him as well. Now it just didn't work out in San Francisco and they got lucky with Brock Purdy and now Purdy is the guy, but I, you know, I think Trey Lance, he, he, we don't have no idea what he is. He's played like two or three games in his NFL career. He hardly played at college, you know, because of the, uh, the pandemic and COVID like, it's very intriguing to see what Dallas is going to do with him because, you know, Dak Prescott, he may or may not be that guy, but they're going to load up on talent. And I think it, it can't hurt you to make that kind of move and give up a, a fourth round pick for that type of player. But to go after him, John, I thought that was very interesting. Like, you know, the 49ers were shopping him, but the Cowboys actively seek it. I feel like they see something in Trey Lance that they think they can build around, whether it's with him or they can trade him later on down. Now, down look, it, and here's the other thing. Like, it's it's an interesting time for Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, the GM in San Francisco, it's kind of a, hey, you have a narrow window. What will they do with Nick Bosa? Can they get Brock Purdy healthy? You know, we all know that there is a there is a season for all things in sports more than just about anything else. And, you know, this is a window for the Niners to compete now. And, you know, it's I think it's embarrassing uh, in a lot of respects for them to give up the the picks that they gave up to go up and get Lance and to see all of the great players that were drafted in that draft that have gone on to do good things in the NFL that could have been productive players in the NFL. But we, I think, you know. Are we giving Shanahan and Lynch too much credit? Like, should we be, be bagging them a little bit for this decision to draft Trey Lance with that pick? Well, well I think I think all I think all GMs have got mistakes that they made. I think the, the big mistake of that 2021 draft is what they gave up to go get Trey Lance. Like, you know, they – they moved and passed up players like, you know, Jalen Waddle goes to the Dolphins at six, and Devonta Smith goes to the Eagles at ten. Like they they passed. They had a bunch of players that you know were used to draft. You know, you know, there were a bunch of players that were drafted with the picks that they gave up, and that others gave up as that pick changed hands a couple of times, and you know the Cowboys ended up at 12 where the Niners eventually were and they got Micah Parsons at 12 and you know they they got a they got a contributor and the Niners moved up and didn't take players that went on to be good players in the NFL and instead you know I think they would be taking a bigger hit if they hadn't positioned themselves as a contender you know if they and I think they'd probably be out of jobs over this but it does shorten their leash a little bit so to speak and i think it the ownership will have a little less patience with them but i'm going to go back to what i started with in this segment everyone makes mistakes all of these teams make mistakes you can look at them and you can find draft picks that they picked that were wrong you can find players that they gave money to that didn't pan out in free agency you can you can uh, you can point to decisions that are made on game day what the winners do that the losers do not do is the winners pivot Bill Belichick notoriously pivots. When he makes a mistake, he signs Antonio Brown. 
realizes this guy's going to be a problem. He doesn't fool around. Gets rid of him. Gets him out of the locker room. Done with him. The Raiders do the same thing, and what do they do? They linger for weeks. They linger for weeks. It festers. It's a story. It's a distraction. You know, you'll eventually end up in the same place, but, man, does it suck energy and focus from your locker room. So I think the Niners were super interested in this not being a distraction. Keep an eye on that to that same respect with your college teams. Keep an eye on Dan Lanning at Oregon. Keep an eye on Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. How much of a distraction will they let anything be that really isn't contributing to the direction of the program in Saturday and Sunday as they approach game day? Leave it here. We'll talk about those game days coming up. we got good shows all week. We'll keep you apprised of everything that's going on. I'm uh, excited that the football is here. Stoked that Oregon's going to be playing a game Saturday. They play Portland State at Autzen Stadium. Not the most, not the biggest game of the season for Oregon. But every game, uh, as coaches will tell you, is uh, an opportunity for fans to get excited, see the team. I'm excited to see Bo Nix and the Oregon offense. want to see what they look like under Will Stein. I, I wonder how much Portland State will force Oregon to show as far as how deep into the playbook they'll get. Dan Lanning will speak to reporters tonight, so we'll get some of that sound. We'll have it for you tomorrow. He is not meeting with media until tonight at about 6.45, so um, otherwise we would have it for you. But uh, Lanning is going to speak to media about uh, what he expects in week one. Last Friday he did tell us that on this show that uh, he's looking at the procedural stuff. And he told this great story about the Georgia game from last year. We all know the Georgia game from last year was an absolute unmitigated disaster for Oregon. Literally to the point where, you know, I'm in the press box. It was it was the first game I'm covering as johnconzano.com credentialed. It's kind of a, you know, a nice moment for me. I'm there. I've traveled to Georgia. I'm you know, I I vowed to go where the stories will take me. And in week one, game one, it was go to Georgia and see uh, Georgia play against Oregon and Dan Lanning. Great. Got settled into the press box. Chip Towers, the beat reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is in the press box. We're talking. There's Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. I talked with him for a little bit. Games Teams are warming up, taking in the atmosphere. See a lot of Oregon fans. I saw Oregon fans you know, in the days leading up to the game. And then the game kicked off, and you know what happened. All right, it was all Georgia. And it, 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 it ended up being kind of an eye-opening moment. I don't know if you felt like, here's an SEC team that is on, that played on the biggest stage, and by the way, was going back-to-back. And here's a Pac-12 team that is pretty good. It's a 10-win team. And it was a knockout. It wasn't close. I actually think if this game is played later in the season, Oregon makes it a little better game. Um, But in the end, we saw what Georgia did to TCU in the national title game. Georgia was fantastic. And it was literally uh, an example of, you know, the, the tight end at Georgia, the outside linebacker at Georgia, the defensive back at Georgia, showing the separation between a star player in the highest level of college football against a pretty good Pac-12 team that was going to be a threat to make the Pac-12 championship. And I think Oregon at its best, if you had taken Oregon in about week five or six, would have hung around a little better in that game, but I still think gets beat by 21. Okay? 
I think they would have been better equipped to handle the moment. Fast forward to this season. Oregon's opening with Portland State. Dan Lanning said on Friday that in the the pregame warm-up against Georgia, he's looking onto the field and they're finishing their warm-up and he realizes that the marching bands of both schools are wanting trying to get on the field. They're coming onto the field. They're not ready for that. There was some mix-up with the timing of it. They got that squared away in week two and week three and beyond, and Oregon was fine and getting off the field when it's supposed to get off the field. But it was that kind of nonsense that, like, Kirby Smart and Georgia wasn't, they weren't worried about. They'd done it. They'd done it for several years. And that's the difference between a first-time, first-year head coach and a program that not only is playing at the highest level of college football, but doing it on a weekly basis and over several years. And there's just procedural stuff in the warm-ups even that most of us don't notice. Most of us aren't tuned into. So, and again, it goes back to, like, what are you looking for from your team in week one of the season? Oregon's probably looking to stay healthy. Oregon's probably looking to get a win and work out some kinks and get in what they think is a kind of a healthy, air quotes here, scrimmage-like win over Portland State. With all due respect to Portland State, they're a Big Sky Conference team. They should not be able to hang around and punch with Oregon, punch for punch. And I think they know that. I think that, they, you know, obviously they're going to go in there and try to uh, shock the world. And they've won games like this. They beat Mike Leach in Washington State in one year, and we saw Montana beat Washington in the Jimmy Lake year. And so I think there's some Big Sky teams that can hang, but this shouldn't be a game if everything goes as expected, and we all know that. Um, meanwhile, you got Oregon State going to San Jose State in a weird Week 1 game. And I always say weird things happen in Week 1 and Week 2. And one of the things that I think is strange about this game is, first and foremost, it's taking place on a Sunday. So you now have your weekly schedule, your game schedule, thrown off. So there's a little wrinkle for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State in that they're off by a day. Not that big a deal. But I think a bigger deal is the fact that San Jose State has played a game already. And that procedural stuff that I talked about, Oregon having to clean up last year after getting boat raced against Georgia, you know, in week two, Oregon kind of came back, and at least they, they had their you know, the war, pregame warm-up stuff all set. Like, any of that kind of stuff that Oregon State is working through, it will be the first time. San Jose State has played a game. Now, again, Oregon State's a better team. They've got better talent. they got higher recruited players. They are of higher expectations. They are favored in this game. They should win this game, despite it being on the road. But I do think it's a little bit weird that San Jose State has played once and will have the benefit of having suited up, having seen some stuff, Having seen some live competition against uh, USC, and frankly, they got some they got some uh, confidence out of that competition. So it's not totally lost on me that San Jose State and uh, and USC's game fifty six twenty eight win by the Trojans. Like USC's offense left that game feeling pretty good. USC's defense left that game probably not feeling that great, even though you know some of the accolades nationally were about Bear Alexander, who had a couple of nice pass rushes and was disruptive, and the fact that they appear to be running around a little better. But I'll tell you, Joel Klatt gave an assessment of the USC defense. First and foremost, they allowed 28 points to San Jose State. Now, San Jose State isn't bad. Let's just like let's call a spade a spade. They were not nearly as bad offensively as like Navy was against Notre Dame. 
they they had some guys, all right, and and they made a few plays. And so from that standpoint, I think USC had a had a tougher draw in their over, opening week rather than Notre Dame. But it's not a comparison apples to apples. So what you have to do is you got to look at some of these you know transfers. They started four of them on defense. They had a true freshman out there as well. So there's a lot of new names. Um, I thought Mason Cobb played well. Bear played well at times. The main takeaway from me was that I thought the defense showed signs that they could be better. I didn't say good or great or dominant. I just said better. I left that game thinking two things. One, USC maybe not that great. Two, thinking San Jose State maybe not that bad. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.